Hey, Will. Hey, John. Will, are you okay? You look sweaty and confused. Yeah, sorry about that, John. It's no big deal. I'm just endlessly upset and unable to find any delight on this sorry blue orb we call planet Earth. I'm sorry to hear that, Will. What's got you so bothered anyway? Well, here's the thing. I was on Cinemaholics.com, my favorite website of all time, of course, since you know that's where I can find all the latest episodes of the Cinemaholic podcast, plus bonus content like written reviews, rankings, even videos. You know the deal. Who doesn't? Best part of my day is reading what's new on the happiest website on Earth. But, uh, well, I ran into some trouble today that I just can't get over. Trouble? Will, if you want, we can certainly go right to the police. No, no, John, it's too late for that. You see, I was on the website and I was trying to find the podcast episode where one or both of us talked about the souvenir directed by Joanna Hogue. But I couldn't remember when the movie came out, what else we talked about that week or anything important like that. I couldn't do nothing. Gosh, Will, that does sound like a nightmare, but I've got some incredible news. You do? So we're finally getting Anna Ferris as a guest on the show? No, not that incredible, but close. There's already a way for you to find anything you're looking for on Cinemaholics.com. You just use the search bar. Search bar? Slow down, John. I can't keep up with your Bill Gates lingo. Where can I find your Tesla space travel NASA search bar? Easy, Will. You just scroll to the top of the page and click on the magnifying glass search icon on the right side of the screen. Then you can put in any movie or actor you can think of to find the podcast episode or any other Cinemaholics content that mentions it. I'm doing that right now. This is incredible. I just found out that there are two times we talked about The Souvenir, starring Honor Swinton Byrne on the Cinemaholics podcast, and I even see a yearly rankings list with a souvenir on it right now. Wow, it's right there. This is the best day of my entire sorry life. Mine too, buddy. Now let's search for the most important Cinemaholics episode of all time. Whoa, John, you're scaring me. What kind of episode could that possibly be? Oh, you'll find out. <laughs> Anna, you can come in right now. Uh, Anna Ferris? You, J- John, you, you didn't. Y- you're right, I didn't. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, where we talk about the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online from the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm John Agroni, film editor for The Young Folks from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he's going to join you for the holidays. It's Will Ashton. Hello, hello. You can find more episodes of our show, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com. If you'd like to hit us up, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com is our email of choice. Again, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And we also have a Patreon that you can check out as well. If you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash cinemaholics. We also have Cinemaholics merch. And this is the part where I should mention that Cinemaholics has a new design and part of that new design is that comments are back on the site. We had to take comments off because we were having spam problems. Will Ashton accidentally sold Cinemaholics to the Russian government again. And so we figured it out though. Will and I, we went to Moscow and well, (laughs) you can watch No Time to Die if you want to know how that turned out. But yeah, now Cinemaholics looks fresh and new. And I I sent the, the new website to Will pretty recently. And Will, you said you hated it? your least favorite no no i thought it was good i sorry i was just it it was a busy weekend for me unfortunately but uh no i i liked it and i hope the listeners like it too you can't you can't you cannot fake that kind of enthusiasm ladies and gentlemen so yeah definitely check that out when you get a chance now part of the big deal for this week I, i think i think in any week 
for us has been th- there are too many movies like there are so many movies coming out we, we can't watch everything it's been kind of impossible so on this yeah. week's show we are going to talk about eternals because it's the big marvel thing you know sure. we can't avoid that so we'll talk yeah. about eternals we're going to have time for spencer of course and we're going to we are going to talk about a little bit of a little smaller movie that some of you might not have heard of called the beta test and we wanted we mm-hmm. wanted to squeeze that in here because we're not here to just talk about the big stuff right the sure. end of the show we say the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online yeah. so yeah yeah well i mean you know chloe Zhao before eternals was just a small indie filmmaker and then you know she made no man land and now, now she made uh, what was that look at her now i mean she's yeah, she had the now. writer and people yep. were like, the writer, that's pretty good. I watched that on yeah. a plane. I enjoyed it on the plane. I was like, wow. I gotta watch it still. I've the heard Dakotas. it's very good. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not bad. And, uh, you know, you can see how this director would, uh, you can see why Eternals has like a whole scene dedicated to <laughs> the writer, basically. We were sure. one of the characters of this. But anyway, so we're, we're going to talk about that movie. But there are a few other f- films that we didn't get to, uh, that we're not going to get to here. Now, the first one I want to mention is The Harder They Fall, which is, you know, people people were talking about this movie. It's a Netflix movie with Idris Elba. No, and yeah, he's a cowboy. No, it's not that other one where he was, uh, what, what was that movie we talked about earlier this year where he was like a concrete cowboy? Yes, concrete cowboy. Yeah, Is I mean, I remember, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. called concrete cowboy. Um, I remember when I saw, because I saw it at TIFF, I saw like the like little snapshot from it. I was like, oh, cool. It's a traditional Western with Idris Elba. And then obviously the film wasn't exactly that. So when I saw this was actually what I thought Concrete Cowboy was, I got very excited. And I started watching it. It's quite good from what I've seen, but I've only seen a little bit of it. But I'm going to be talking about that with Corey Woodruff. And you can hear that bonus episode sometime this week, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, I won't be able to make it. So for me, the re- and I wanted to see Harder They Fall, but ah, so much stuff is going on because we also have Wheel of Time coming out next week, and I've been busy watching that. I'm seeing Encanto today, and it's just like, ugh, everything's coming out right now. And we still have so many releases coming out the rest of November. We have a bunch of stuff coming out in December. It's going to be a really busy time. So we'll do our best. Uh, if there's anything we miss that like we don't even mention on the show and you're curious about it, Please help us out, of course. Uh, you know, leave a comment on the main show, or you know, send us the email. Do what you got to do. But we will be talking about harder they fall, or will we'll be talking about that one in a bonus show. I even realized too that I, I didn't talk about uh, last week. I think I mentioned that I was going to be watching the new souvenir, the souvenir part two, and so I did. I did watch that, but we're not going to be doing a big thing about it. And I, I think because Will, you haven't seen it yet, and I don't know when you're going to be able to catch it. And I don't even think can, you need to yeah. rush to see it. I mean, it would be great if you could see it in theaters, but. I don't know when that's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, it may not even be playing in Pittsburgh, unfortunately. Um, it might. Um, I'm actually waiting to find out today if we're playing it at the theater where I work, the Harris Theater. So, um, yeah, if we get it, it wouldn't be until around Thanksgiving. So, unfortunately, that's the earliest I'm looking at to see. And it could even be later than that, unfortunately. But, yeah, I mean, I really liked the the first souvenir. I guess maybe not really liked. I, I liked it a good bit. I was excited to see a second one, and I've heard the new one is even better. So I'm definitely going to try to see it if I can in theaters. But if not, I'll see it sometime on demand or something like that. Sure. It's not a typical sequel. And I do think it's one that if you have an opportunity to see it in theaters, Will, since I know you love the theatrical experience, it's one of those for sure. And yeah, we'll see. Hopefully you'll get that opportunity here soon, but that's why we won't be talking about the souvenir part two anytime in the super near future. 
that said, I do have a review of it out on my YouTube channel and on the youngfolks.com. So if you want to know what I thought about it, I haven't talked about it here on the podcast. I'm just going to hold off for now, but I really liked it. And I had some, you know, some hesitations with the movie that I get into more with my review. But I think that some people, if you know who you are, if you're really hardcore fan of a certain type of indie movie this is one you don't want to miss now there is one more movie i wanted to mention here and we'll be ending the show talking about what's coming up next week i think we're you know we're we have big stuff coming up next week one of those movies is finch and finch we had it we thought we would be able to squeeze it into this episode but again there's just too much. Like I was able to see it just barely. Will I think you didn't have quite enough time? But we're thinking. No. But we're thinking we got time. Like, this thing just dropped on Apple TV Plus, right? Yeah. Um, I I lightly recommend it. I don't think it's amazing, but I think it's a little bit of a nice gem. It's it's very derivative, but it's like it, derivative in a good way. Like if you're going to be derivative, be derivative of Silent Running and Wally. Like sure, you sure. know, <laughs> I'm good with that. Especially if you have Tom Hanks with you. Well, I was- I mean, I saw like the opening of it, like the cold opening, and it had kind of a I Am Legend vibe too, I'm guessing. Uh, that's one of the films you're referring Not to. Not too badly. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking it was going to be more I Am Legend in the very beginning, and then it, it's a little bit, it's an RV movie in the post-apocalypse with a robot and Tom Hanks and a lovely yeah. dog. It's it's basically a Fallout movie without all the crazy Fallout yeah, I mean, it's good. What's yeah. not the like from that description? <laughs> yeah, so we'll be talking about Finch more next week, hopefully. And uh, so that gives you listeners some time to check it out if you're interested as well. It's on Apple TV+. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned yet, Harder They Fall was Netflix. So super clear about that. Lots of stuff coming our way, but uh, we don't have any more time. We're out of time already because we got we just got to get right into this big review. It's, it's the big Marvel movie. We can't avoid it. Let's talk about Eternals. Five years ago, Thanos erased half of the population of the universe. But the people of this planet brought everyone back with a snap of a finger. The sudden return of the population provided the necessary energy for the emergence to begin. How long do we have? Seven days. We're Eternals. We came here 7,000 years ago to protect humans from the deviants. Why didn't you guys help fight Thanos or any war or all the other terrible things throughout history? We were instructed not to interfere in any human conflicts unless deviants are involved. By who? So Eternals is the 26th Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. As I say that, I can I, I, I can hear Will Ashen's eyes like falling into the back of his skull, right? Because just, just this idea uh. that... We've seen 26 of these. I, um. <laughs> I feel like I'm pretty numb to the whole Marvel thing at this point. Like, you know, I've gone through like so many phases with how I feel about them. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm not the biggest Marvel fan. I've, you know, aired my grievances with uh, how they make movies and stuff before. But I mean, yeah, this one, this one, I was at least 
curious about because as we mentioned at the top of the show chloe Zhao directed it it seemed like marvel wanted to kind of push back against their formula in some ways i find interesting i still find interesting but also i mean like to their credit they're not just kind of doing the same thing over again with this film but at the same time they kind of are so it's sure. it's uh yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's it's always I think it's kind of fun on a uh, film curiosity level to sort of look at what Marvel is doing just from a machine level perspective of like what their plans are. What are their blueprints? Like I get a little bit of joy from that. It's even removed from uh, the movies. It's like nerdy trivia stuff. Yeah, it, it just, it's not for everybody. It's just so clinical. I feel like it just feels yes. like you're like, OK, now we got to make sure we got to release this date and, you know, we got to make sure we do this thing. And this it's happens. becoming more and more like the comic book realm which i think is uh, a caution uh, reality for some people i would assume but anyway yeah, Eternals, yeah. Uh, i it, it's so funny to me T- two big things about this movie one i think is the obvious like this is a big move by the mcu to sort of th- they want to do another guardians of the galaxy like reset what you think of with these movies how cosmic and grandiose they can be it's setting was, up a ton of stuff yeah was that the intent <laughs> <laughs> to make yes. this Guardians of the Galaxy? Well, no, not, uh, not in terms of tone. But sure. if you recall with Guardians of the Galaxy, that movie comes out in 2014. So several right. years after Iron Man. Yes. And we had only gotten like hints of like a big cosmic universe outside of like we had gotten it in Thor to some mm-hmm. extent, like very small. And then we we got the hints, right, of Avengers of like, there's this Thanos character, there's this like big alien race. Yes. Guardians was like the entry point into, okay, here's like a, a laid back intro into like how the rest of the universe outside of Earth works, right? Right. No, I big got success. you. Yeah. yeah. Eternals is trying to do the same thing with like, we'll talk about it, but like Celestials and like just big big brain stuff that they want to do and that, that's what i was getting at earlier with the this is like me being kind of like a comic booky sure. like oh how are they going to do this like what, what's going to come here and there and it, yeah it's, it, it all is very pedantic the other thing with sure. this movie is that this was supposed to come out last year so this was supposed to come out before shang chi right at and right after black widow we were going to get black widow in mm-hmm. like what was it like april or may of last year and then uh, may yeah and then we were going to get Eternals in November. So it was always going to be like, I think November. I think it was always going to be like a fall release, right? They but not only that, like they had awards hopes for this. That's what stuff. I was about to say. Right, they, yeah. they wanted this to be like, okay, we're going to put this out maybe in Venice or maybe, I don't think they would have kind of tell you right, but you know what I mean? Like they, they wanted this to be like what Dune is right This now. was, yeah, like this is like their prestige film in a way that like, I think technically at this point, they only have had one genuinely prestige film and that was the first Black Panther film. Yes. Uh, so they were kind of trying to do that half-heartedly with Avengers, Avengers Endgame as well, and kind of like, well, you know, you gave Return of the King 13 nominations, maybe you can throw a bone to us. But obviously the Academy didn't care about that. Yeah, the um, Academy was like, sure, you can, you're, you're Avengers 5. Right. <laughs> no thanks. But no, but like, this is like legit, like they were campaigning to get Oscar nominations for this film. Not solely, obviously. That, that wasn't the only intent of the film, but they were thinking because, you know, obviously they got Chloe's out. They were, they obviously, you know, had her involved with the project before she won um, Best Director and Best Picture with Nomadland. Nomadland, which is insane to think because she was going to have Eternals and Nomadland coming out at around the same time, which is wild to me. I mean, I, it, it's almost kind of fitting. Yeah. For Marvel, like I think it worked out for them in the long run. Sure. Because and for Eternals her. kind of and for her because she gets her Nomad Land push last year and then Eternals comes out this year. I mean the, it writes itself, the narrative. Yeah. You know what I mean? Do you 
Do you think this would have been a Norbit kind of situation where if Eternals had come out the same year as Nomadland, people would be like, uh, I don't know, maybe we should give Best Picture something else? Possibly so. Like it would have sucked some of the energy and the sort of she can do no wrong part of because you got to remember the awards crowd is so fickle sure. to what you're saying, right? It's they're, like they're make, very reactionary, yeah. I guess, is what you're trying to say. We're already seeing with Eternals because Eternals is getting negative criticism. And, you know, for me, like I'm I'm not I, I, I was pretty negative on the movie initially and still am. Um, a lot of people like it, but a lot of people don't as well. And I think there is already this sort of, oh, it, is Chloe Zhao really a good director? Which is ridiculous because, I mean, she just made a Marvel movie. I mean, like right. you know, you could criticize this, but I, I think that her work on Nomadland is totally removed from the result of this movie. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm still a big fan of Nomadland. Uh, funny enough, I, I just realized I'm still wearing my Nomadland shirt. They gave me one during the uh, <laughs> award season. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 um, I've been homebound today, but um, yesterday, I thought it'd be funny because, like, obviously, it'd be like people wearing like whatever Thor or whatever shirts. I thought it'd be funny if I just walked in with like a Nomad shirt being like, Nomadland, Nomadland, <laughs> and this uh, audience and the the only person I recognized there or even acknowledged it was the the ticket guy at the box office just like, oh, yeah, Nomadland. I heard that was pretty good. I was like, yep, <laughs> it won Best Picture. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, it's you, good. you heard right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, uh, yeah, I really like Nomadland. Uh, I guess it's uncool to say that at this point. Um, I don't know. People have... I don't know. I remember like it happens with every award season. I feel like whatever, with the exception of like Parasite and a few others, where it's just like whatever movie wins Best Picture is automatically not cool anymore because it's like it won the big prize. So it's like there's prestige to it or something. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've only seen it one time and I saw it back at Virtual Tiff, but I really did like that film. And I think, you know, however you feel about this film, however I feel about this film, uh, I don't think that takes away from what she did with Nomadland. Totally agree. Well, let's let's actually talk about the movie. I we've been we've been dancing around the details, and I think part of that is because there's a lot of exposition in Eternals. So, like, even just like explaining it kind of tires me a little bit. And I'll I'll do my best here. But. Yeah, because um, <laughs> even like when the movie started, just was like. <sighs> All right. Yeah. So in the beginning, <laughs> <laughs> it did kind of have like a Genesis one one kind of vibe, um, which is which is interesting. I think in in terms of like this is very different, right? For for Marvel, they're, they're kind of doing like they've done space. Now they're kind of doing like okay, here's like the history of everything. Like they're trying to do like. Uh, you know, in the Bible, you know, they're trying to like do religion stuff here too. It's, it's, it's big ambitions uh, that uh, this whole movie is. So Eternals, the whole setup is that there are these super powered beings called Eternals. Like it's a whole crew of them. They're basically like Power Rangers mixed with like Captain Planet. They are super old, like thousands, if not thousands of years old, maybe even older than that. We don't You're know. You're telling me these Eternals are really old? Yeah, right? Isn't that that ridiculous? But they were sent to the planet Earth in 5000 BC. So like right at the dawn of like when civilization was kicking off. Like I don't think at 5000 BC, like we had things like the written word yet or anything like that. We're still, you know, long off. But that's like Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization. So the Eternals are sent to Earth by Celestials. And the Celestials, if you remember from other Marvel films, they're basically like gods, like the gods of the Marvel Universe. They're these all-powerful beings. We, I think the, the big Celestial character 
character we've run into was Ego, the Living Planet from Guardians of the Galaxy 2, even though he was kind of like a rogue celestial. He kind of like was an accidental celestial so he's not fully like the same sort of deal i don't think he's as powerful or supposed to be as powerful as the other ones and we've seen other celestials kind of pop up here and there but not in a major way now the celestials send these eternals to different planets to fight these creatures called deviants that are very kind of boring they kind of remind me of like the hulk dogs like the hulk 2003 dogs where they're like these like fleshy predators that are just trying to like kill everything like because they just are and the eternals have to go to these planets to destroy them so that civilization can prosper so that's like been their job their one focus over thousands of years is like they came to earth they defeated all these deviants and they've just been kind of like waiting around in case the deviants come back they're not allowed to do anything else and the movie like makes a point to bring that up like i was just watching the trailer for the first time and you can really tell that they like the writers of this movie uh, and there, there are a few. Chloe Zhao has a co-writing screenplay credit. We also have Patrick Burley, Ryan and Firpo, and Kaz Firpo. But you yeah, can she, tell. Um, she has two writing credits on this, which I don't know how that works from a WGA standpoint. But um, yeah, she a different drafts probably. Uh, whatever yeah whatever <laughs> i would say i i would say that they they clearly like were in the writer's room it's like oh, everyone's gonna complain of like why didn't the eternals help out uh, when you know when thanos was doing his thing where, where were they when ultron was doing this thing if they were around during world war ii why didn't they do this why didn't they do that because they have superpowers right and so this movie is saying oh well, they're not allowed which is kind of ridiculous because like they still do stuff <laughs> like we get flashbacks in this movie where they are kind of interfering. And I guess this movie is trying to say it's like they, they try not to interfere because they make things worse, I guess is the point. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, well, that reminded me of like, you ever like try to like explain something really complicated. And I'm not saying this specifically just as an example, like explain something really complicated to children. And they're just like, why is that happens? Like closer for like this, like, well, why didn't they help out when Thanos happens? Like, oh, they can't. Why can't they? Oh, uh, you know, because like they're not allowed to. Why aren't they allowed to? Because like they would interfere with humanity and cause. Well, why can't they help with other things? I, look, I don't know, kid. Like, just they couldn't. <laughs> I you just know? hear like Chloe Zhao like just saying that. Right. It's like, like well, I just imagine her with like Richard Madden. And he's right. the one who was asking because if they did, things get complicated. Well, isn't things already? Complicated? I don't know. Like they, they just don't worry about it. Just don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. Now, these Eternals are are very interesting on their own. Like, it's, a, it's an interesting cast. They're like a diverse group, right? And so, like, the idea is that they are diverse because they're supposed to sort of blend in sort of like with humanity, I think is the point. One of them uh, is like a young kid, for example. And I, I think that's like been one of the weirder criticisms against this movie like one of the criticisms i don't get is that like oh this is a diversity checklist and i'm like well i don't know because it kind of matches the story to have like people of different races part of your like earth ambassador team right like i, I don't know I, just, I think people are saying like oh it's forced that they have like a black they have like a black character they have a deaf character they have you know yeah a chinese character like i'm like okay but i mean they're most most of them are white <laughs> like also right. I don't know, you're just trying to make your cast interesting and like you have an opportunity to cast different people who are good for the job so to me force yeah. would be you get like you you drill it in our heads over and over again but i don't think this movie well, does so that. i mean like there's this whole idea of like kind of like bringing the band back together and they're like traveling the world and stuff wouldn't it make sense just to have them like all be different 
ethnicities and backgrounds and stuff. Yeah, I feel and it's like more, that's more interesting that way. Yeah. Like, why right. why is it such a problem? Like, uh, you have a an Indian, or I think he's Pakistan or Pakistani. It's like you have him in the yeah. role. I'm like, well, yeah, that's fun. You get to have like a whole Bollywood part of the movie, and it's like, sure. what's wrong with that? I don't know. People are weird. I mean, the Bollywood stuff was probably my favorite thing, honestly. Like that was like when I kind of perked up. I was like, oh, this is fun again. And then like, well, was, you know, and it was funny. Stuff happened. It was, I love the idea of like, uh, you know, somebody's kind of like making movies about the, uh, I think he was making stuff about the Avengers too, or there are like little hints about like, he's kind of like almost like they, they look down on the Avengers. And I think rightfully so like they're, they're kind of above it all. And like that kind of energy I was that I found interesting. I was like, Oh, you know, why not, you know, (laughs) play, have a little fun with the MCU in that way. Punch, punch down at it. Have fun. (laughs) <laughs> oh man i don't know if there's if there's time for that john and in internals I don't, I don't think we have we can't budget in fun for this one so sorry uh so the movie takes place in the present day the deviants have come back as you can imagine there's this big emergence event that's going to happen where basically something really bad is i don't think we should get into the details because people might find it spoilery but something really bad is going to happen and the world and the internals kind of have to interfere once again and you already mentioned they have to get the game back together i was surprised that the main character here what is actually Gemma Chan. Now, Gemma Chan, we saw her in Captain Marvel and that, the 2019 movie. She was like kind of a, a side antagonist in that movie. And we get to see her in this one. And she's like the main character. She plays a character named Cersei. She thought she had one of the most interesting like powers, I thought, where she can like change matter into something else. It's like, man, I can't wait to see that used in so many different creative ways. Yikes. Um, because that didn't happen. But uh, she, she's sometimes... Uh-huh. Here and there. She turned a bus into sand. That was kind of cool. I think it was like rose petals or something. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I saw this movie longer than you did. Well, you already forgot. That's that's telling us something. But uh. she she's kind of like the heart of the team, right? She's very empathetic. She she probably cares about the humans, uh, you know, overall more than anybody on the team. And she's like a museum curator, and she's kind of like the main character. And it's like, hey, this is kind of cool. Like she's a different kind of main character. She's kind of like a a sensitive but clear headed kind of protagonist, and she's like the leader. Uh, she's kind of like the de facto leader because the person who's considered the strongest among them is Icarus, played by Richard Madden, and he's kind of on the outs with the team because he just kind of pieced out hundred years ago. No one's heard from him. He's super powerful. He's like Superman. He can like fly around, shoot laser beams and all that stuff and he had a big old romance with Gemma Chan and that's right Marvel had yeah. more had a sex scene oh well yeah well they I mean that. they had one in uh Iron Man 1 I guess some people forget that but it's different though it's like they kind of just like this is actual you know they're, they're doing the hanky panky and this yeah yeah to the as opposed to the night out or the morning after um in because i think man in the one. iron man one too it's just sort of like crashing again he like roll on the bed for a second and fall off yeah, like they, it's kind of just like the, the, it's the first part of it but like this is like full-on like something's happening like yeah covered the kid's eyes yeah which i mean you know i Had that's the thing about eventually. this movie is that like they are actually responding to criticism so you can't like you can't get mad at like they're actually addressing things that people have brought up which is that you know these marvel movies have largely been pretty sexless i mean we were making fun of that and saying chi as like you know having uh these movies be you know fairly celibate with their characters and stuff like that has been i don't know if it's been like a major issue but something that's very noticeable and kind of distracting after 20 something films with you know like these clearly adult characters and whatnot so 
yeah, I mean, you know, it's brought up in this film, but at the same time, I think uh, a sex scene would be better if the two characters had uh, chemistry. <laughs> yeah, if they clearly liked each other, <laughs> like if they enjoyed being around each other in any sort of way. Because when we, we meet Cersei in the present day, she's not with Icarus anymore. She's with this guy, uh, I forget his name, Dane something, uh, played by Kit Harrington. Yeah. And he works in the museum Was... with her. Uh, was that a spoiler? Because my audience didn't know that he was going to be in it, and I didn't know if that was announced freehand. But um, he's in the trailer, so is he? I, okay, sure. And he's part of the marketing. I knew. Okay, Kit I, didn't know if he was I never even not. watched the trailer. I knew Kit Harrington was in this. Okay, I must have forgotten. I don't know. Like my audience, I guess was they were surprised to see him in the film. Really? Well, I mean, hey, yeah. I, not everybody's in the in the know. I guess. I mean, if you're listening to Cinemaholics. I feel like you probably kind of, you, you know, you're going to get a few details. I mean, he shows up yeah. in the very beginning of the film. If this was like a character who shows up at the very end, I probably wouldn't mention it. Um, yeah. Do you think they brought him on because they're like, give me that dark haired, handsome guy from Game of Thrones. And they brought him instead of Richard Madden. He's like, no, no. Uh, well, well, if you're both here. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's some interesting stuff that happens with his character that alludes to other things they could do in other movies, but he's not a big presence in this movie so he shows up in the beginning and he's not really around that much this is more of like like richard madden is like to your point is like who they kind of kept around for more of the film but yeah we also have camille nanjiani in this his marvel debut i thought he was really fun uh, we have brian tyree henry uh, but he doesn't show up till later barry keegan he also doesn't do much till later in the film don lee's in this and then angelina jolie in a supporting role you know like she's yeah. she's not the main eternal um, cause that's what I was expecting. I was expecting her to be the yeah, sort of like here. what Gemma Chan is. Right. Mm-hmm. But no, like yeah. she's kind of like the, the older, wiser battle hardened character supporting and interesting career direction for her. Same as Salma Hayek. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like Angelina Jolie isn't really super interested in being a movie star at this point. Clearly she's been directing right. more. She's been focusing her efforts on producing a lot recently. So, I mean, when she was announced to be in the Marvel franchise you know no i mean as with this movie it was kind of like oh wow like you know it's kind of that's a big commitment you know considering she doesn't really act much and then when you see the films it's like oh okay so she's kind of playing more of a mentor figure to you know kind of boost up the movie's profile and stuff which i mean makes sense but it is a bit odd to see like a genuine movie star like angelia jolie around and she just kind of like you know doesn't really do much yeah, I mean, she has like a character. She's one of the few Eternals that has like a full character arc in this movie. A lot of them don't. And part of that, I guess, is because some of these characters are fresh faces, right? So we have Lauren Ridloff, who plays an Eternal who's like super fast. She's barely in the movie, though. I was kind of disappointed that she didn't show up at more because like, hey, I'm a deaf person. <laughs> I love I like the idea of seeing a deaf superhero. Yeah, so I, I mean, you know, I thought she was, you know, pretty genuinely charismatic too and in a way that i was um i was bummed that her character wasn't a bigger part of the film because i was i was interested about her character i was you know obviously progressive to have uh her in the film but yeah it just kind of seemed like there wasn't really much to her character um besides her disability which felt like a big shame i I definitely like there was there were hints at things about her that were interesting this idea that she's been stealing artifacts from all over the world and like collecting them i was like oh that's fun and also she can read fast she runs fast she's uh, yeah she's fast she's belfast um but i guess i i guess the main thing for me with her is that the jimmy chan and richard madden's characters no chemistry whatsoever but they try right like they they're on screen and then they're supposed to be this like burning well they won't they could they should they but then barry keegan and lauren ridloff are together for 2.5 seconds 
and I can't like the chemistry is like echoing. Like people in the audience right. are just like, oh my gosh, love is in the air. <laughs> people start hugging yeah, and just... kissing each other watching these two on screen. Yeah, there's just a little bit more of a genuine spark between them. Um, yeah. Even, you know, like with the short span of time we see with Brian Tyree Henry and his love interest isn't there's not like a, a flame between them, but there's at least a little bit something you can kind of understand it. Yeah. With the, the, there's like real like emotion and like a, right. I've loved you for the longest time between Brian Tyree Henry. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say he's, he's the first gay superhero in the MCU. One of the first on screen blockbuster gay superheroes ever. Um, they're not a yeah, lot. Probably. And um, yeah. Yeah. I big so, move. Yeah. Marvel saying like, yeah, okay, we hear you. Like right. you wanted, you wanted, uh, the, the Joe Russo thing wasn't enough for you in Avengers Endgame. Well, mm-hmm. all right, here you go. Yeah. Yeah. They get, they get smooch and all that. And which is, you know, they get a it's, big it's old nice smooch. Yeah. I was high five in the air. I was like, all right, we're moving, we're moving on to, to exciting things. Leah McHugh is another fresh face here. She, she's one of the only ones that like, okay, I haven't seen her in anything before. Right. Or I don't think I have, if I have, I've just, forgotten her um but she is she gets like a bit of a story arc here but it's like one of the worst ones because it just revolves around who she likes and there's the most interesting thing about her is that like she's been a kid for thousands of years and she can't age and she's just constantly being like why is this like why did they do this to me like why do i have to look like this like what you know and that's so interesting. But then they take, this is like indicative of the whole film. They take this interesting question and then the answer to it is like, well, really what she wants is a boyfriend. And it's like, that is such a unsatisfying like thing. Like I, I get, I get like part of the, the movie is about like, ro- there is like a romantic element to it. And so I kind of get that, but I guess like she is kind of a microcosm of all my complaints with this movie. Like her, and I also think that Gemma Chan is so reactionary as a main character. Like most of this movie, she's interesting in the very beginning when it's just her and Sprite and, you know, she has her, you know, museum job. She's kind of running, like she's kind of interesting there. But then as this movie gets buried in other characters, she's just like a blank slate. Like she's no personality, no sort of like, I'm, I'm not emotionally hooked into this character and what she wants. They really just ride everything on who, which boy she's going to choose. You know what I mean? And it's so uninteresting to me. And this movie was very uninteresting to me. It's, I think it's very dull, but what what do you think of Eternals? I am unfortunately not too far from where you are at this point. I mean, if my uh, jokes and kind of, uh, you know, dismissive attitude towards the film hasn't already been uh, heard already. I mean, I, I think it's not coming from a place where I was writing this movie off initially. I, I know a lot of people online were kind of already coming into this movie with knives because, like we said before, Marvel was acting like this is like, oh, this isn't like your usual Marvel movie. Like, this is this is legit. Like, this is awards This isn't, your, nephew. this isn't your nephew's Marvel. Yeah. This is your, right. your grandpappy's. Which, I mean, I don't know, like like we said, like I was willing to give it the benefit of the doubt, not only because Chloe Zhao was involved, but like clearly they were willing to do things with this movie that they have been avoiding or just outright ignoring with previous Marvel and MCU movies. And like, you know, like we said, like there's open sexuality, there's complex questions, there's this kind of uh, deeper thoughtfulness to it. There's like actual yeah. scenes shot on locations that's, I believe at least partially shot on film too. Like there's like clear effort to put 
this make it more cinematic, like kind of make it less of like your kind of like run of the mill Marvel movie effort. So I am already going to come into this with a little bit more interest and in, say, you know, whatever is going to be coming up next, um, you know, Spider-Man or whatever. Like I just I'm, I'm more intrigued inherently with what is going to be happening with this film. But unfortunately, like you said, like I was going in with the the criticisms in mind but knowing that like oh you know maybe like people aren't really willing to meet this movie at its level but unfortunately i just think it's not very well made like it's not well paced uh each scene like you said is kind of devoid of um like current tension or conflict and like there's just kind of flatness to how things look even like like a lot of the scenes are underlit because i think chloe's out was trying to do kind of more naturalistic uh filming with this and in a way that i think would be interesting but unfortunately i think the marvel style just kind of under played that to the point where some scenes are kind of hard to see like a lot of the fight scenes are kind of given like this kind of like gray and black exterior that's not very visually dynamic especially for a film like this that is uh slow pace and also just you know three hours long basically with with trailers and so yeah i mean it just it, the the sad thing is just it's not very interesting and it's just not very well made which is a shame because like you said like on paper i think this is wildly way more interesting than your average marvel movie even some of the ways it makes some like very bold and i would say wrong-headed choices at times <laughs> as far as like some characters and like decisions they make you know certainly um you know, I, I imagine we're going to have to talk about the Hiroshima thing at some point, which is just such a baffling decision. But like even in execution scenes like that just have like no real flair or interest to them. It just seems like even having like a high pedigree cast, just seems like they're they're all just kind of shrugging their shoulders with their goofy outfits, just kind of being like, I don't I don't really know what we're doing with this one. Like I'm just going to just kind of hope it turns out well because all these other movie movies seem OK. So I guess like breaking it down, it seems a little bit more interesting than something like Song-Chi because or like Black Widow because it just it has more inherently wrong and interesting ways but watching it unfortunately it's just a it's just a slog yeah it's it's weird because like I really don't hate this or anything like while I was watching it I didn't find myself extremely bored I just sort of like after I got out of it I had this feeling of like what was the point like I feel like I, I sat through such a long movie I didn't really get anything from it I felt a little bit like it was it was riding me along and it was giving me just enough to keep me interested so that I didn't fully check out. But I, I guess like by the end of it, I was like, what? there were so many things I feel like they just sort of bungled that they didn't need a bungle because, it's, it, you know, I, I agree with most of what you're saying here. I think it's impressive in what it's trying to do. And the result, though, is lots of monologues, lots of complicated lore and just overall, like everything's like a mess. Like I feel like the lore and the mythology are in one are one movie, and then the emotion and the character development are in a totally different movie, and the two just don't go together. Like part of like what brings all this stuff together, it should be seamless. It should be connected. I should, while the action scenes are happening, even though I thought the action scenes were kind of dully lit and everything, I should really care about what's happening. I should really care when it looks like a character might die or does die. But this movie suffers from the fact that it has so many characters and it has so, it has such a big franchise yeah. connection that I can't really believe any death is real or permanent, especially when mm -hmm. they reveal something that I won't, 
I won't reveal that makes me think, okay, they could just have this actor come back if they really wanted to. So what are the stakes? And then it asks these big philosophical questions of like, should they do this? If they do this, this could happen. And I'm like, wow, that's an interesting question. That's actually like a genuinely confounding, like ethical dilemma. And then the movie's answer to it is nowhere near as interesting as the question. It just falls flat. It's like, well, we're just going to do this thing that feels like it was just ripped right from the comic book without any real thought or consideration to the rest of the movie. And it's just stuff like that that's more glaring when, even if it happens in other Marvel movies, at least with those movies, like Shang-Chi, you have such an exciting, energetic, and quickly paced movie that you can really, you more easily forgive stuff like this. So in this movie, that's harder to do. Yeah, I mean, with this movie in particular, like when you bring up like Guardians of the Galaxy, I think that's as close as we've gotten to like a happy marriage of like a filmmaker and the Marvel style that we've come by. And then also, I'd say um, Black Panther, too. Well, because, he helped develop like, a lot of that, right? I think James Gunn, um, one of the. Sure. I, I would say because he, he has a lot of continuity with Marvel movies at this point because this is before the Russos came in. Sure. And Marvel was still kind of all over the place, we tend to forget. They had made yeah. a couple of stinkers. Around that time, they had made Thor sure. The Dark World, they had made Iron Man 2, mm-hmm. they had made The Incredible Hulk. It wasn't like Marvel had it all figured out when Gunn was showing up. Sure, but I mean, I think it's fair to say that Kevin Feige is like the author of the MCU, especially as we know it now. And um, yeah, like it seems like oftentimes we're like, well, why is this movie like we have like, you know, all these talented filmmakers that usually come in to make these movies, but they feel so distinctless because more often than not, it seems like Kevin Feige kind of hires lower end, like, you know, low budget filmmakers and gets them under his wing to kind of have the clout of like artistic credibility. But then he just kind of like, you know, has second unit teams do the action scenes and like, you know, it, 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 he, he's kind of runs a show while also like kind of letting him do like different things with actors or whatever. But this is like the rare right. time so far as I can see where he actually kind of let Chloe Zhao, like, you know, have more of a creative stay in this, which is what he should be doing. I think, you know, letting filmmakers have more of an impression on their films, letting them do their things. But in this film, it, it feels like it backfired because, you know, frankly, Chloe Zhao, she's only done, what, like three films now at this point, maybe four. Um, and most of them are fairly low budget. I don't think anything outside of like Nomadland was more than like uh, five million at this point. And, you know, just kind of throwing her into it with this film is just like it's so overwhelming, even for like an experienced filmmaker with, you know, however many blockbusters under their belt. But it seems like for her, it just it, she seems like constantly overwhelmed, like trying to figure out like, all right, so we're doing this. Like, well, why are we doing this? OK, I have to go back, explain. So this is why this is happening. It's like and then, like it just that's why I think the pacing suffers. I think that's why the story suffers. I think that's why the character suffers. Just like it just seems like a movie. that's so overwhelmed with itself because like, you know, it, it is Marvel, like taking a risk being like, OK, we've gained enough clout. We've made almost 30 movies at this movie at this point. Um, we can, you know, kind of experiment a little bit, maybe do something with more artistic credibility and you know actually really make a, another awards contender like we did with Black Panther but yeah it seems like even though they are doing the right things with this movie it seems like the execution just falls flat because they just uh they couldn't quite find that balance uh, unfortunately and it, it's a shame because I think they're going to take the wrong lessons from this and not try yes. to do things like uh, this when they should I'm sorry about that it just yeah yeah, I mean, I, I mean, who knows? Maybe they, they will just be like, okay, we kind of goofed on that one, but like mm-hmm. we were on to something there. But I'm worried that they're going to be like, okay, fine, we're not going to shoot on real locations. We're not going to do more 
to like diversify and expand the mythos and all that stuff when they should, they just kind of need to like, you know, I think Kevin Feige just needs to kind of have a little bit more creative influence, but not take away from the artistic intent of his filmmakers. It's a balance that's come about, I think one or two times, especially like I said, with black Panther and with um, guardians of galaxy. But otherwise it seems like he just doesn't really let filmmakers do that thing. But when he does, unfortunately it backfires with this one. Yeah, I mean, I want to be specific with Captain Marvel is one of the big ones where you have Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, who are these indie directors about the same level of like budgets that they were used to as Chloe Zhao. They didn't have quite the same critical acclaim as Zhao or like recent momentum that she did. But yeah, you look at Captain Marvel and you don't like what what about that movie like screams Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck? Clearly, they uh, were taking well, they were borrowing more from Black Panther here with Ryan Coogler because sure. you watch Black Panther. That is a Ryan Coogler movie. Like he's he very much is in that. But even that movie suffers a bit from, you know, even he has said that like action's not his thing. So they, they kind of did the action from like with a totally mm-hmm. different team, right? Yeah, second unit. Yeah, which I mean, I felt it was more jarring with this film because there were so many times where like, okay, this is Chloe Zhao clearly directing, and here's the second unit team getting involved yes. and all that. Like, it, like there's like a whole like scene with like a CG cave thing, and I just checked out because it's like, okay, this is just the the second unit kind of doing a CG, uh, you know, nonsense thing for a bit, and I can just emotionally check out because it's not nothing's really happening here. So. Uh, I feel like that's not really the intent of the film. I don't think I feel like I'm supposed to be allowed to check out for like 15 minutes in your like three hour movie before like the action kind of kicks back again in like the last 25 minutes. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I maybe that's what you're supposed to get out of a three hour epic like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's so long and yet it's still very rushed because they rush through a lot of these really important character moments where we there are just some eternals we barely spend time with and we we need more time with to sort of understand they do they go to so many locations they go to so many places there are also a lot of flashbacks in this movie i mean it again it is impressive what they were able to pull off in a two hour and 40 minute film or whatever it is because like how many sets how many costumes like this is just such a lot to do and so a lot of people have said and i had this exact same thought because Disney Plus is on the mind and the recent success of WandaVision and Loki is on the mind. But a lot of people are looking at this like, why didn't you just do a Disney Plus series? Because then you could have like, here's the episode where we meet Camille Nanjiani and you get a whole episode of his character and you have like the flashbacks. You could do like the sort of lost thing. And so then... When you get to the big climax of the season, then you ha- not only do you have more time, but you are way more invested, right? Because you've had hours and hours with these characters, but it hasn't felt like you've had to sit through it all at once. And it is weird psychologically how our brains work. But people are saying like, well, yeah, miniseries would have worked. And hey, maybe it would have. Because again, Loki and WandaVision have been very successful. I mean, Falcon and Winter Soldier, I think they were smart to do that as a series. Because if that had been a movie, that probably would have been not have gone over super well, right? But I don't know, because box office is still so important. And this movie had a good opening weekend. A lot of people like me are thinking it's going to be very front loaded. It didn't make as much as Shang-Chi, but, you know, it's making enough to like justify like it's not going to be like a major disaster or anything for the studio, depending on how the next few weeks sort out. And it's looking good for them because they don't have a ton of competition. Uh, it's it's award season. And I mean, the, the next big thing that's going to compete with them is their own movie in Kanto, right? So and Ghostbusters Afterlife, which I, I could actually see that being a big, big movie. But because I think last I saw it, Ghostbusters is tracking super well. But that said, Eternals, they, they can't 
pass up an opportunity to make a ton of money <laughs> with the box office because that's where the money really is. Their subscriber growth has really slowed down. And I don't think p- making an eternal show based on characters people don't know and something of like, I got to watch like 10 episodes of a show with characters I don't know in order to be caught up on a bunch of big movies that are going to happen. I think that would have been a bad bet. So I can see why Feige and them were like, no, let's just do the movie. Let's do the prestige movie that can win awards. And you know what? It didn't work for for me and you and, and a, a bunch of other people. But some people really love this. And I, I am sort of baffled by it, like what people are really liking about it. I, I don't really I've read some reviews. I've, I've tried to like see, OK, why did you like this? Like, what was it about it? Like, what am I missing? Or like what you know, have you have you been able to get any sense of that? I know you've, you've seen the film more recently and you haven't really had time, I assume, to like really get into it. But I mean, do you have yep. any theories? <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's always going to be when you have like a movie like this where people have expectations about it and it kind of goes somewhat in a different way. I think there's always going to be inherently someone who's just like, oh, no, 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 no. You understand. This is misunderstood. This is secretly great. You know, what I mean, like there's so many movies where, you know, especially in the superhero genre, people are just like, you know, those those uh, simple minded fools. They're not understanding the brilliance here that's really going on i don't know i mean i i think there's oh and there's also real quick there are also yeah. expectations at play right so like sure. a lot of critics like well, we, we saw this yeah. before most of the reviews were out right so i didn't know how it was going to be but then now you have people who are watching it like fanboys, right and you have people who think it's going to be terrible and they're watching it, it's not that bad so maybe they're being a little bit more enthusiastic to help make up for that perceived like people are being too hard on this which i understand yeah I mean, I can understand walking out of this hearing. It's like, oh, it's the lowest rated Marvel movie. Oh, it's like a real black mark for the the MCU and seeing and be like, eh, you know, it's not not great, but it's like it's fine. I, you know, I still think it's very messy and incoherent, but it's not my least favorite Marvel movie. Like I would probably be willing to give this one another spin before I rewatch like Thor The Dark World or Black Widow or something. But um, you know, just because I think there's a little bit more at play here. It is obviously ambitious in a way that other Marvel movies can somewhat settle. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think, you know, they, they've cleared a bunch of benchmarks. I think Feige isn't a dumb guy. Like he clearly, you know, paces out pretty well as far as like what the MCU is, but there's still some hurdles I think he's trying to get over. One of which is being, you know, kind of seen as equal to some of his cinematic counterparts. Like there is the Sigma with the Marvel movies that they're just kind of like, you know, like, like with the whole Martin Scorsese thing and all that, where it's just like, Oh, like they're theme park rides. They're not real movies and all this stuff. And I think he, he may not show it, but I think that is starting to eat at Kevin Feige. He's just like, no, I'll yeah, show yeah. him. I'm going to make a real movie. Like this is a real movie. And you know, it is a risk. I could, like, I, I could I, see I, him like yeah. whispering that to Chloe Zhao by the camera. And she's like, yeah. okay, Kevin. Okay. It's like, we're going right. to show him, aren't we? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. And she's like looking right. at her well, notepad of like other movies she can't wait to make. But I mean, like, I don't know, like I, I generally don't know like what happened behind the scenes. But like I said, it feels like he gave Chloe Zhao a little bit more creative freedom than like some of his other, you know, up and coming filmmakers that he's put under his wing. So right. I do wonder if he's kind of like, you know, like if this had turned out well, he could be like, oh, well, you know, thank Chloe Zhao. She's the one that pulled it off and all that. And he could, you know, have more of that credibility and kind of be like, I, you know, I despise the talent. I kind of shepherd the way and all that. And you know, I mean, also he. I guess he could have lied if that was not the case, but I mean, it sounds like he wants, you know, to kind of like be able to have more of a um, standing, I guess, critically, or at least with like 
film circles as far as like being, you know, a real, uh, you know, a real great producer outside of just like being, you know, financially wealthy and, you know, making these hugely successful films like you know having that kind of critical cloud is i imagine is probably eating at him at this point and i'm you know speculating so who knows maybe he's like completely content in his life and he could care less but and also, i imagine I don't, that's the case yeah yeah and, and i also imagine like i think they like this was going to come out last year dune was supposed to come out last year too so it was always going to be yeah. sort of matched up against that movie and it does like i think Zhao was probably invoking a lot of arrival a lot of like blade runner 2049 in terms of how she wanted to kind of like blend oh, her you know yeah blend sci-fi I mean, with her style she's said like her influences are kubrick and villeneuve and uh somebody else of like high yeah. stature like that yeah, um and and, and yeah. fittingly so I, I think that she's you know <laughs> but all that said, i do think she still has a very distinctive style but again i i think though we haven't really mentioned this but i think it is worth saying that they also are dealing with a very unpopular property at a very unpopular IP. People don't know what the Eternals uh, are. The Eternals were never niche. a big deal in the comics. I mean, yeah, niche, I guess, but like there aren't really like Eternals fans. I mean, this is something that Jack Kirby did in right. like, the seventies and it never took off. They've tried plenty of times. And I do think yeah. this is like a scraping the bottom of the barrel kind of move where I, there's not that built in fan base. And I think that there well, is this sort of, I think there's an excitement of that where like we can do anything with this. Right. right. Same thing with guardians I of the galaxy. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, yeah. I mean, I think it's more like, he's just kind of like, well, it's not like there's that many fans are going to get mad if we do something weird with this one. Sure. Like, why don't we just take a chance? And, and like, you know, obviously like Marvel is a brand at this point, maybe one of the few like legit brands that like, you know, there's a built in audience that's guaranteed to go to theaters now, if there's a new Marvel movie, it's like, they can get weird with it and they should get weird with it. I encourage them to get weird with it. But yeah, I mean, I feel like they get weird with the story and they get weird with the characters, but just like tonally, like, I mean, I haven't, I have very little experience with the Eternals comics, but from what I can tell, they're very colorful, very pulpy, very, very like weird and outlandish in a way that this movie seems to be allergic to for the most part, like that, that Bollywood scene you're talking about, it's a anomaly in the film because it's just like, Oh, there's color again. There's excitement. Like there's energy. Like where was this, the rest of the movie and where did it go? Like, it's just like, that should be like, the rest of the movie should be like fun and zippy like that. And it just seems like for the most part, uh, either because there is still like that Marvel formula or like they just cannot kind of move past their like established style or whatever. That just seems like they can't really find that, that, that zaniness that would make this property, I think a little bit more endearing than it is because it's so self-serious that like, even like the dumber stuff about this stands out more. Cause it's like, you're asking me to take this so seriously, but they're like, you know, these weird, the space god things that you know i don't know it just doesn't just doesn't find its way unfortunately it is working for some people and i i hope that i can you know have a conversation in the coming future with somebody who really digs this i see this as being like oh yeah the eternals is like my guilty pleasure it's like i know it's not everybody's favorite but i really like it and you know, I think there are some things in here to like but clearly not uh, our kind of movie now that's it what 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 about the Rotten Tomato score? Will Ashen, have you seen the Rotten Tomato score for Eternals? Uh, I've seen one of the scores because there have been so many articles about how this mm. is the first Rotten uh, MCU movie, I guess, officially. It's been all over the place, to, to be fair. I've seen it 
climb and go down and then go down and down sure. and down and then go back up. And then it's just, it's, hey, who knows? So what was the last score you saw? The last score I saw was, I believe, 52%. All right. Where do you think it is now? 54%. It actually went down from there, which I was surprised. 49%? I thought it might go up a little bit because um, I thought some of the late breaking critics might have come in. But I think this is one of those like, all right, now the, the there's blood um, in the water. It's at 48%. Yeah, 48%. I think the narrative is there at this point. Like this yeah. is considered a disappointment. And so, you know. People aren't trying to like, right. Like, unless there's like the few or like, they're just like, oh no, this is secretly awesome. Which I mean, like, like I would, I was hoping to be that person. I was hoping to be like, you fools. Don't you see what Chloe Zhao is doing here? But, uh, no, I, I mean, think Disney I'm, was purposeful yeah. though, in terms of like who they, who they got to watch this early. Um, because it was in the seventies, uh, at the, in like the first week of like the embargo. And I do, I, I saw like really positive reviews and I was like, uh, Okay. I mean, not, not from like, the um, SF area. Like I think SF critics, we were pretty united and not liking it see, very much. Like we were walking yeah. out of the theater and being like, the heck was that? But yeah. um, I, th- um, I think, I think they purposely like try, they made sure that like some of the comic book sites check this out and they tend right. to be favorable. Like they weren't giving high ratings. Like I wasn't seeing like five out of five, but I was seeing like, oh, you know, it's not amazing, but yeah, you know, like B minus, like I, I was seeing that. Yeah. Well, I was seeing like, even from like those like folks are just like, as soon as the Marvel logo goes up, I'm, this is a 10 out of 10 for me kind of folks. I'm exaggerating, obviously. But um, <laughs> even they were just kind of like, well, it's it, it's dense. I got to like, I well, got to sleep Perry on it. Like, they were, like, it acting, was, yeah. Perry Nemiroff got in trouble because yeah. she said it was dense and people didn't know if she meant that it was dense, like stupid or dense. Like there's a lot in it. And she uh, was just sort of like, no comment. Okay. I, um, I wasn't referring to her exactly. I just, there were like at least four tweets I saw that were like, it's so dense and people were yeah, like, it's you. dense. Yeah. I wasn't trying to call her out any or anything. Oh, I know. I know. Um, I know. She, cause she wasn't, you know, she's not like that kind of, she's actually, she's a like legit critic. She's very good. But anyway, that's yeah. 48% out of 300 reviews. But what about the audience score? Will? what do you think that is? 5,000 plus verified ratings because oh, Marvel. Um, <laughs> it's a tough one. I don't, I wouldn't have guessed it. Yeah, because that's the thing, right? Because, like, my audience seemed kind of split on it. Like, they were, like... Like, some folks were, like, clearly into it. Like, it took a while, but they were, like, all right. They're telling jokes. Okay, I can like this. All right. Um, <laughs> Kingo. But, I like um, yeah. Fall Collection Ikea. Okay, okay, good. Um, <laughs> Phew. <laughs> they, were like, they were sweating until that scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like... I just feel like... <sighs> Outside of like the diehards, I feel like most people are going to be kind of like whatever, just like, you know, I just saw Dune. That was better than this. Like, like we didn't even mention, like, I feel like if this had come out last year, it would have came out the same year as Old Guard. So it might even be worse. Like, I didn't love Old Guard, but pl- pl- people clearly like that one more. And it's kind of a similar type film. So people would, I feel like, even, even be more like, just watch Old Guard. Why, why are we I watching mean, I this? I liked Old Guard much better than this. I think they're both equally kind of dull, but I think I admire what Old Guard is going for more because it's shorter and it's smarter. But um, yeah, I think I think the audience is going to be slightly more favorable than critics, but still kind of on the lower end for Marvel. So I'm going to say 61%. It's an 80%. Well, you know Surprising, what? Surprising, right? I, I, I wouldn't have guessed that. Good for that. Chloe Zhao. Yeah, I would I would have guessed that I, guess. I, w- I would have guessed around what you guessed, but no, I mean the audience is saying like yeah it's it's different, but it's got the stuff that I want, so I'm in, I'm good with it. So at least so far, now the cinema score is a different story. I imagine you've heard about that. That's been all over the cinema score. No, I actually have not. 
I've, I've seen a lot and okay I, i've seen a lot of people like chatting about the cinema score because it's, it is a very uh, interesting it's people it, what do you think it is people you have one only life in this world unless you believe in reincarnation uh <laughs> why, don't why spend your time conversation at every thanksgiving table <laughs> you have one life presumably um don't spend it speculating on cinema scores with that said <laughs> wasting your i time. think the cinema score is a c plus no, it's a B. But okay, why are people B talking about is, it? Is the lowest for like an MCU film ever. Okay. It is very unusual. MCU films, I think the lowest, they're almost always like A, A plus, sometimes sure. A minus, rarely just, B plus. Uh, they're never like B. Yeah. I just, I'm just laughing because I'm just imagining like the cinema score audience is like so dejected after walking out of the movie. It's like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I guess I got to give it a B. <laughs> well, I think, I, I don't know if that's how they determine it. Um, I, I, I don't know exactly how cinema score works. I, I mean, I've read about it, but I, I forget because I, I think they base it a lot on like, would you recommend it and stuff like that. But anyway, that's Eternals. It is a very long movie <laughs> and it's you, yeah. i feel like everybody who really wanted to see it already did and i think word of mouth is going to hurt it quite a bit in the next week or two uh, yes. it's made 161 million dollars worldwide 200 million dollar budget i i think this could lose money i don't think it's going to be a major flop but i don't know i i don't i, I think mean, it, it does it does have the issue where some countries aren't playing it because of the the inclusion of right. a gay character right so yeah and they can't just like edit that out as easily as they have in their other movies and they shouldn't edit it out in my opinion yeah but um but um yeah i mean i'm glad they kept it in uh for sure it is showing you know because disney has been kind of skittish about like having like gay characters but in a way that they can edit around like with the uh, rise of skywalker and beauty and the beast so i'm glad they're not editing it yeah but um yeah with the with this film i guess the big question is do, are we going to get eternals 2 which you know clearly they're teeing up at the end of this movie but like you know it doesn't seem like anyone really is interested in it maybe some folks are i think are they they'll probably do it? like a captain marvel thing where i can i mean captain marvel made a lot of money but they're not just going to do like another solo movie with her they're going to like bring in other characters and make a big event out of it so it's going to be like miss marvel and it's also going to be this character we've been building up in the streaming series i i think that's probably the right move they're probably going to take some of the eternals that people liked <laughs> you know what i mean and be like all right hmm. your favorites are back but we're gonna like put them in this movie with you know this new character that's really exciting maybe it's going to be played by someone from the post-credits scene that we won't reveal now right you know what i mean yeah uh yeah so maybe maybe um, we have them hang out with like guardians of the galaxy there's all kinds of stuff they can do to keep it interesting for people who want that sort sure. of thing maybe they can do a split deal with xanax to get people to go <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh sorry right. I, think that, I think that's our cue to move on we've, yeah, we've been sorry. almost an hour on, um, on eternals <laughs> i think you 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 got you got the point from us sure. on this one oh about, man let's talk about a movie that is uh different in every way <laughs> i would say let's talk about this movie spencer Spencer is the latest film directed by Pablo Lorraine. He, he did another film in 2019 that I didn't see. I think we talked about trying to catch it at one point. It was called Emma, E-M-A. And I didn't see it. Did you see Emma? Did you get to that one? Um, no. Did that, I, I, did that come out last year or this year? I've, I've seen it on like best of year was, list for both. Yeah, it was a 2019 release, I think, um, or a festival release. And then I think, yeah, it, it, it got a little bit of buzz in 2020, People were starting to watch it then, but, and we talked about saying, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I didn't see it. Yeah. I've heard it's quite good. I mean, 
I was thinking about this earlier. Like I, I've only seen, I think, uh, two other Pablo Lorraine films before Spencer. I saw No with Gail Garcia Bernal, and then I saw Jackie, and I really liked both of them. And I was just kind of like, you know, like I don't, like I don't consider like uh, Pablo Lorraine to be like one of my favorite Pablo directors. By f- sorry, Pablo Lorraine. I apologize. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, I think he. Has a pretty good track record, though it seems like that Apple TV Plus thing he did kind of came and went this year. So, oh, are you talking about uh, Lysi's story? Yeah, the Stephen King yeah, that was, adaptation. That was one of those things that like people liked it, but it wasn't you know it wasn't a buzzy release. Uh, but he directed all of that, and um, I think that's um that's Stephen King, isn't it? I think that's a Stephen King adaptation. Yeah, yeah, so it yeah, should it have is, more yeah. buzz in it. It should have it should have had more buzz. But hey, what are you going to do? Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I haven't seen no, but I have seen Jackie as well. And and Jackie, I think, was a, a really good movie that not enough people, I think, came out to watch and celebrate. Like it had some like very early awards buzz. But then I think yeah. some people are saying Spencer is going to be similar in the sense that like mm-hmm. it had a splash and then it just kind of like fizzled out as like other movies took the stage. Um, I think yeah. that movie, though, like people people were looking at that in the same way with Spencer was like the costumes, the production design, and then mm-hmm. the actress, you know, at the center of it. Jackie was a movie that was about Jackie Kennedy. And it was like a sort of uh, I saw I heard one critic refer. I think it was Katie Walsh be like he he makes these doom princess doomed princess movies. Right. Um, and so well, Jackie was. that, yeah, And then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I was going to get into this more in my review, but I feel like this is sort of like the inverse of Jackie, right? Because Jackie is a woman dealing with the aftermath of a tragic death, whereas like Spencer is like sort of like this like weird, like inevitability of her death and like kind of like her almost kind of coming to terms with the fact that her life is going to meet her end. So it's like almost like the mere opposite of Jackie in that respect. Sure. And Spencer is also a total anti-biopic where they are purposefully not trying to do a true story. They're not trying to give you a packaged recap of a person's uh, life. Uh, or, a fable and uh, based yeah, on a f- true tragedy is what the title card yeah. says, right? Yeah. Which is which is a great way to start the movie because it does set your expectations there. So you can understand like, OK, a lot of this is going to be fictional, but the spirit of it is going to be like probably very interesting. It's not doing nothing like we've seen in like, uh, what was it? Uh, the 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 one that was last year with Renee Zellweger, that that biopic, because uh, wasn't that like Judy? a. Judy, yeah. Wasn't the that Judy movie Garland kind film? of like just a moment of her life, but it was like there were back, maybe there were like sure. flashbacks and things like that? Yeah, I mean, there have been at least one or two other uh, Princess Diana movies. I don't think we've gotten like a full like traditional biopic, but we had that one with Naomi Watts called Diana that Oof, came out, terrible. which was like kind of trying to do a similar thing. Well, it was like the last three years of her life, I think. Um, and focusing on an affair that she had. And yeah, I mean, I don't think we've actually ever gotten like a traditional uh, Princess Diana biopic, but I feel like maybe more so than most other political figures or royal family figures, like her life has been so publicized and so speculated on stuff that it's almost basically kind of common knowledge, even for us in the U.S., and the crown is already doing it. The crown and, you know, their most recent season covered like the first, like, I, I, I didn't see it, but I think it covers like the first few years, maybe the first decade of her marriage to Prince Charles and all that. This movie takes place in 1991. So it's been a decade since they got married. 
And the movie does rely a bit on you knowing about Princess Diana in order to sort of fill yeah. in the blanks. I mean, I think you could watch this without knowing all the details and still get mm-hmm. the spirit of it across, but it definitely doesn't hurt, right, to have the context of what happens before and after this movie. Sure. Um, in fact, I, I think some people have even said, like, oh, I was confused because I didn't I didn't really realize, you know, that she wasn't really divorced with Charles yet, but they were separated. And some people were a little confused about that, I guess. But I, I, I felt like I was able to pick up on that, you know sort of thing yeah i mean uh princess diana i mean i was like very young when she died so i don't have that much familiarity with her but like i don't know that i know like kind of the general gist like the thing like some of the big pop culture moments i guess of her life and then like i know about her death but yeah it it was the first like major death tragedy that i was aware of like oh, really? media frenzy around it. It was on the news all the time. I, I don't remember like a made like a death of a single person or some kind of like scandalous thing like that happening. Because I was around like seven years old, I think, when okay, she died. Yeah. I I think I was four years old when it happened. So I don't really have any cognitive memories of it happening. I mean, I guess I was around, but I don't like, you know, I don't remember much about it, if anything. You were hanging out. Uh, yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, I was probably just thinking about kindergarten or something. So um, preschool. You were, you were in Belfast mode, you know, like sure. you're, you're singing everlasting love. Just a movie, and- <laughs> just a movie about me trying to process the death of Princess Diana as a kid or something. <laughs> that's the, see, that that'd is be, what Pablo Rain should have made. Uh, that's That would be a very boring film. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, that's all that. Yeah, that's all to say that um, my familiarity with Princess Diana was fairly limited, but I felt like I didn't have any questions or confusion about her life uh watching the film at least yeah for for me i learned more about diana later on you know like i i remember hearing certain things i I had the understanding as even as a kid that she was a highly publicized princess i in fact i was even misinformed like i misunderstood her origin and because i thought she was like oh she was like a teacher she was like a commoner who married a prince and that was not the case she was she was she came from nobility like close to the family but she was the first princess who like she was the first one to marry into the family who had had a paying job before her marriage you know she was a teacher yes. adjunct i think and so there well, was that's that speaks yeah. to the narrative right there's this sort of like oh she's a a princess of the people, even though she, she wasn't mm-hmm. like nobility. It's kind of, I guess, similar to Meghan Markle where, you know, she's technically a commoner, but she was like a major celebrity when she married Prince Harry, who right. hey, is in this movie as a, I mean, not him, but <laughs> yeah, as a young boy. Right. Well, I mean, that, that is honestly, I think uh, what Pablo Lorraine has said, like he, his intent with the film was to focus on how a woman like that can be so normal in a life that is so abnormal. And like you said, I think there's obvious reasons for it. But even then, like, I think the fact that she had this kind of nobility and all that, but she was willing to openly and emotionally interact with like the common people, obviously, like the whole um, where I think she like touched an AIDS patient was like a big deal for that. And like, there's a lot of other things where she was like, willing to like, kind of like, uh, be with the people in a way that that felt very uh, revolutionary, I guess, like felt like something like that was almost unheard of for like the royal family that were just so like caged off and, you know, elusive in this way that obviously she wasn't. And, you know, Mar- it, with the, the tragedy added to it gives her like this kind of weird balance of like mystique, but also there's like this like humanity to her life and legacy that, uh, you know, I think makes it still very uh, painful for a lot of people to reflect on. You can really tell that pop culture had to really process Princess Diana's death 
through like movies and TV shows because she died in the the 1990s from a car accident in Paris. And I, I always remember how like the princess diaries comes out a few years later. And to me, that always felt like a sort of reclamation of that princess, you know, who kind of comes from seemingly humble beginnings. And then I think the sequel to that movie was very much sort of like echoing the ideals of Princess Diana and what she meant to people, but kind of using film and using pop culture to sort of bring her back almost to like sort of revive that message. Now with Spencer, this movie is doing something totally different from anything I've ever seen from a film or a show or anything tackling Princess Diana. Because like you said, I think Lorraine does understand that people know the story inside and out. A lot of people are sick of people sort of capitalizing on how publicized her death was and capitalizing on that recognition of her name in order to pump out art to make money. There is that element. So I really, really love what Paulo Rain is going for here. Like the fact that he's going for it at all, which is, as we said, it's a fable. It's a sort of like high concept, fictional, let's just make a movie that really just like hits on this moment in time. It's not about her death. It's about, you know, it's several years before and it's her, like a pivotal moment of her life. Just a couple of days around Christmas time. It is a Christmas movie covering the psychological trauma she went to in just a capsule. You know, the the sort of things that she had to deal with from not having any freedom, not having enough agency, dealing with, uh, there should be trigger warnings, I think, for this movie and for what we're about to talk about, but there there's a lot here about eating disorders. And there's a lot here about what, you know, what she did to her body in order to sort of live up to not just the pressures of the royal family, which she always felt disconnected from and always uncomfortable around. And the, the film even uses like the house to be this constantly uncomfortable place. It's like mm-hmm. the, the shining sometimes. And, you know, they oh, yeah, absolutely. Even have like the air quality, like it's cold and uninviting. It's super on yeah. the nose. Well, I was thinking that too, because I was like, I know I just went through like a month of horror movies, but it feels like this is like kind of like horror adjacent at times in a way that I didn't anticipate, but really liked, like, it feels like, you know, like the house is literally like suffocating her at times. Like it's, you know, even though it's like this huge expansive house, it feels like constricting at so many different points and like how, you know, she can't like, she physically cannot leave. Like she keeps trying to like walk away and these people keep pulling her back in, in a way that, you know, is, is a, is a little literal, but in, in a way that I found pretty affecting and engaging. Yeah. It's, it's haunting and has a it has a horror score by Johnny Greenwood, the best score of the year, in my opinion. I, I well, the best for sure. Yeah, I, I, I easily my favorite. And I, I think I that mean, it's yeah. it's got to it, it's got to get nominated. I, I could see, definitely see it winning. Well, yeah, it's a big year for Johnny Greenwood. He has this. Yeah. He has Power of the Dog. I think he did the score for and then yeah. he also did uh, Licorice Pizza. So he'll probably get nominated and win for at least one of those, I think. That's I think so. Prediction. I think this is his year. Uh, I think that Phantom Thread was an unbelievably good score, and I still listen to it. It's that good. And, you know, speaking of Licorice Pizza. But yeah, so with Spencer, I, I refer to this in my review as like, it's like a ghost story where the ghost is still technically alive, right? Where a lot of things like happen, but it feels like a ghost is going through it. And it's, it's such a fascinating way to tackle this subject matter. There are scenes where you can't take them literally. And you have to sort of wonder, you know, is she doing this in real life? Probably not. There's a scene where she is like eating something, for example. And it's like, okay, that's clearly not the case. And there are even moments when these things are played for last. I got a huge laugh out of this movie involving, I won't give it away, but it involves the score. And it involves like the revelation of like where music is coming from that even though I was terrified by what was going on, I was 
unbelievably like I, I felt all of this like amusement and like laughter from it. it was it was kind of disconcerting almost but also this movie is very light and th there are moments here i think one of the best scenes in the film where it's just diana with her kids and they're just it's like a a, set, a breath of relief and and fresh you know like there's warmth all of a sudden like the, the color palette changes and she's just hanging out with her kids and goofing around with them late at night and it, it's one of the best I, I, it's probably my favorite scene out of the whole movie there's a lot to talk about here and i, I want to be careful about what we say but um i want to turn it to, over to you i also want to say kristen stewart i think she's really good in this role and if she wins best actress i, I think that's uh I think it's well-deserved because she puts on a heck of a performance. I, I, I've seen some criticism toward her performance and maybe we'll get into that, but I think it's spot on. Yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, maybe I missed this, but I was kind of surprised leading up to it that there wasn't more controversy about uh, an American playing such a, you know, iconic British person. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she does a great know, job though with like, you know, it's not a princess Diana impression. She's not doing a princess oh, yeah, Diana yeah. voice. She's just doing a British accent. She's doing her own right. thing with it, which is also very fascinating. But I think mean, I, I would hope that's a credit to Kristen Stewart that people are just like, Oh, well, Kristen Stewart's doing it. Well, yeah, she was great. And uh personal shopper, you know, why not let her play princess Diana? Um, but you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe it was just because last year there was so much going on. People didn't uh, speculate on that, but I just feel like, you know, if, you know, if American got cast as James Bond, all hell would break loose in the UK. Like they'd just be like, uh, uh, <coughs> it'd just be like, you know, pandemonium over there. But like, you know, an American plays uh prince day and I don't hear a peep about it. So, and yeah. I don't think there should be, but I just, I just find it amusing that there wasn't. I'm um, always happy but, to see that yeah. though, just because look, we have British actors play Americans all of the time. It's such oh, a sure. double standard and we don't care. We're just like, Hey, yeah, come on in. Water's fine. Uh, well, yeah, Cumberbatch. I, mean, I think more, it's usually just like, Oh, he was British. Oh, though cool. I feel I feel like though with I don't know I mean I still need to see Power of the Dog but I kind of feel like anytime Benedict Cumberbatch plays an American it, it's always very apparent to me because it's just always just oh, like yeah, well, howdy, well howdy y'all <laughs> my like name Hugh is Benedict Cumberbatch <laughs> oh yeah and Mass <laughs> Black Mass um, that was it well I was thinking of um what was the the Guantanamo Bay movie that uh, came out this year um but Jodie Foster Okay, well, he's just like, I'm your southern good boy, and I'm just, you know, a regular old American uh, in, in a way that, I mean, I, I like the movie fine, but I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> um, but that's neither here nor there. That that's nothing to do with uh, with Princess Anna or Spencer. Um, but yeah, no, I, uh, I was quite taken by her performance. One thing I really, really enjoyed about the film is that I, I think it channels something about Kristen Stewart that I find really fascinating and something that I think uh, a lot of filmmakers have used well, which is that like, even though she's obviously like yeah, a beautiful, talented actress, she always feels deeply uncomfortable, like in her skin and feels like she's like almost like kind of like crawling out of her body in every like role that she's in, even like some of the lesser films. And I think that's a, I think that's part of the key to why I think she's such a um, endearing screen presence. There's like something about her where it just kind of feels like she's just uncomfortable with not only her fame, but just the idea of being alive. And I think that's a really inspired idea for casting her as princess Diana, you know, like this uh, woman who is, you know, always in every single moment, even like these personal times in her life, she's expected to be like this kind of prim and proper person like always expected to be the elegant person, always expected to be like Princess Diana, always expected to be, you know, like 
on in this way that like even like in her personal life when she's just like with her kids and stuff she has to kind of embody a certain image and like even you know like when she tries to have a moment by herself there's always someone around like being like oh you have to be like this thing you have to be here you have to put this dress on and stuff and i think that makes uh kristen stewart's casting really inspired and i think she fits into the role really well for that reason because she's able to kind of play into that inherent uh uncomfortableness with being a celebrity with being this person kind of fitting this image at all times but also i just think she's able to kind of acknowledge the sort of like um the the facade of really like being in the royal family but in a way that feels genuine and which is a really really tricky balance that i'm really impressed with how she's able to pull off in a way that um yeah i think it's just really a great credit to her as an actress and as a screen presence that she's able to kind of find this uh really tight balance between being this kind of idyllic image of princess diana but finding this uh you know somewhat falsified uh image of like you know like who she was behind closed doors which is obviously you know a personification because we we won't fully know unless you know maybe something comes out from the royal family which it probably never will but um yeah i I think you know just that's all a roundabout way of just saying that uh it's a really tricky performance to pull off and i think she deserves a lot of credit for it because she does a great job it's also a tricky movie to pull off because like you said by tackling who princess diana was behind closed doors you do run into the danger zone of your film feeling exploitative of this human being and i think it could have very easily fallen into that trap some people still think it did you know with in their opinions uh, but i i certainly don't i think that what's fascinating to me about this movie is the fact that princess diana was a fairy tale that turned into a tragedy you know it was this fairy tale romance that turned into all of this scandal because of her her alleged affair and prince charles affairs and then it ended in tragedy it ended you know her life was cut short and this movie is sort of unpacking through a character study, a really great character study, what was really like what can be at the heart of a person going through something like this. Like one of the things that I think is brilliant about what Stephen Knight, the screenwriter, kind of lays out here in terms of like the screenplay is she barely interacts with the royal family, like almost never. Like she has, I think, maybe one scene with the queen. And it is uh, it's very memorable. Directly. Directly. I mean, she, yeah. One direct scene with the queen, yeah. It's like one-on-one. She has like one one-on-one scene with Prince Charles. But most of the time, she's interacting with the help. She's interacting mm-hmm. a lot with Sean Harris, the cook, who his introduction in the film is brilliant <laughs> in terms yeah. of like, th- this movie is like a, f- a gourmet food, you know. Oh, th- yeah. There's a lot of food porn in this. Including, um, I-, I won't give away, but there's a chain at yes. the end of the film that I, Brilliant. yes, great. Chef's great, kiss. Great stuff. <laughs> uh, um, because um, I was talking with my friend who I went to a movie with. We were just kind of like, he was telling me, hey, did you know that Prince Diana was a big fan of this brand? And I was like, oh, I had no idea how that happened. It's just like, I don't know, but they're like making sweaters for her and all this stuff to lead up to the film. It's like, oh, that's kind of an odd choice. Wouldn't it be funny <laughs> if uh, that brand was in the movie and then the end of the film happened and it's like the Super Bowl happened for us because the theater was mostly absent. So it's just like, it happened. It happened. <laughs> It's that's here. funny. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, like I was saying, I mean, it, it, she, she, she mainly, mainly interacts with the people who I think that's the film posits that she can trust. Like she feels like she can connect with because, you know, they're not nobility like her, but they are, you know, they're not royals. And so she interacts with Sean Harris. She interacts um, a lot with Sally Hawkins character who plays her royal dresser and she sees her as a friend, but then 
she does start to get the feeling. She start, starts to get the anxiety of like, who can I trust? Who's saying things about me? Who, you know, all of the gossip is getting to her. And it, yeah, it's a movie about anxiety yep. and depression and, you know, how we, we can feel like relationships, like people are turning us against one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Timothy's, walls are always like echoing with whatever she says. Exactly. Even if it's, yeah. Yeah. It's Everyone really hears effective. everything. It's yeah, very, it's yeah. very blunt about all that messaging and Timothy Spall, um, also is kind of one of those characters who's, you know, always given her gruff about every little thing. Right. And oh, he's the major perfectly cast. Yes. Timothy Spall. hundred percent. Great grump. Just a great grump. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I honestly think that this movie gets a lot of things right. I I've seen the main criticisms I've seen that I do think are kind of valid, but they, they don't ruin what I, like my enthusiasm for the film, I'm, I'm pretty high on it. But uh, some, some of the criticisms, criticisms I have seen have been like, okay, there are one too many or several too many times when the, they explain the metaphor, which I do get. Like there, there are a few times when I think it can be interpreted as Pablo Rain thinks we're dumb. <laughs> and he's like, okay, so you, made, you, you have to say that well, like she sees herself as the pheasant. We can't just have that sitting in the air. I, yeah. I have my own reaction to that sort of like, blunt metaphor commentary mm-hmm. but uh, i'll let you say something for sure well i was just gonna say i i don't know if that's fully pablo lorraine or if that's stephen knight who i don't know if he mentioned wrote the screenplay and i know hot you off know, serenity ca- <laughs> well i mean hot off of um what was that uh, awful movie that came out this year lockdown oh um, yeah he did do lockdown i forgot about that Yeah, because i was thinking it's funny that he did one of the best films of the year and arguably the worst. <laughs> yeah, um, there you go. And then um, last, one of the worst of last year's too. And then, I mean, he hasn't made a lot uh, of good films in general. I mean, I guess Locke probably... 2019 or was that 2020? 2019, but we, okay. we were seeing it early 2020, but he did Girl oh, okay. in Spider's Web, which wasn't very good. Okay, I, I never saw that one. I didn't really like Allied very much. I mean, I thought Burnt was okay, but right. and pawn sacrifice was i like pawn sacrifice but lock i, I think is probably one. his big movie yeah, lock. Are like yeah that's good well that's why i was excited because it's just like he's really good about writing like a contained like chamber piece like that and he directed where, like, it too right yes exactly um yeah so i was excited for that reason and i think a lot of the stuff in his script i don't think it's a bad script per se but it does a lot rely a lot on text over subtext in a way that like dialogue can be very literal a lot of the visual metaphors are kind of on the nose to a comical degree, I think at times. Yeah. Including this whole thing with, uh, Anne Boleyn, Anna Boleyn, uh, yeah. in a way that it was you just don't like, have to say, it. <laughs> I mean, I got it. the first 10 times, like you yeah, can kind exactly. of calm down. Um, yeah, I, I just feel like that's where I feel like, okay, like put a little trust in your audience. Like we can, we can, we can figure this out after three or four times, you know, like I, I think I wasn't bothered so much about like the, like pheasant stuff and things like that. Like, I think that was done a little bit more tastefully, but yeah, just I, I think for me, that's what holds this back from being like a great film is just that there's just so many times where it feels like the movie doesn't trust itself or it doesn't trust its audience to be willing to be uh, a little bit more subdued, a little bit less obvious and on the nose with what it's trying to say about Princess Diana and stuff like that. And I think if it maybe respect itself or its audience a little bit more, it could have found that balance and, and been even more uh, profound in what it's, it's communicating. But as it is, it feels like it's kind of robbing itself at different points, especially in the second half. I, 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 I get that. I, I have my own sort of like pet theory for what Knight and Lorraine are trying to get across. And, and, and look, this doesn't, 
disqualify, I think, the criticism. I think it can still very much be like, okay, you know, please don't do this. But I think what he's trying to get at is, I think they're doing it on purpose. I think they know that it's it's really like, you know, over explanation-y. Like you don't need to say that people are smart enough. But I think they're just trying to be like, okay, but everything in her life was so subtle. And so like everything is spoken and, you know, has double meaning. So I think they were trying to like present it as like, what if like, the metaphor was just said out loud, like, just say it because it's less that the impact of knowing that she's the pheasant and it's more of like her recognizing it and coming to terms with it. I think that's what they're going for. I don't think it works for every instance. Like, I think there are a couple others. Like I think the Anne Boleyn thing is the biggest issue, but I think there, yeah. there is this sort of like intentional effort to let it be clear to the audience, not that they need to know that it's a thing, but that she knows it. Right. And and I, I still get like the criticisms can still stand for people because you're like, well, you trust that she knows that. I don't know. I, I think that because the movie is so abstract in other ways, they're just trying to like not lose sight of how smart and, you know, that this is the metaphor that she is like grabbing onto for herself. And there is something unique about that that I kind of appreciate about the movie. Yeah. I mean, I get that. I I guess for me, I find myself more frustrated by it because all the other tones that they're striving for, I think, throughout the film are done really effectively. Like, even like you said, even though it is speculative and kind of verges on like tabloid kind of ideas about uh, Prince Diane, I think it, it is able to be fairly tasteful in its presentation, be a very lovely, well-made film, and also like kind of have like these like Cassavetes-esque like woman under the influence sort of touches as well that kind of give the movie a jagged edge that somehow doesn't interfere with, like I said, the kind of more polished, uh, you know, pristine qualities of the film that I, I think it's that stuff. It's so well done and so well balanced throughout the film that when it does kind of do like a clunky visual metaphor like that, it just becomes more jarring to me because it's just like, well, you're doing so much of this stuff so well already. Why not just give yourself a little bit more faith to just kind of let that be a little bit more artfully done, I guess. I, I agree. Guess I agree. It could have been yeah, balanced yeah. better. Sure. Yeah. So that's, that's my takeaway from that at least. Sure. There was the cinematography. <laughs> Sorry. I, I couldn't resist. Uh, no, the cinematography was, was quite, uh, yeah. <laughs> quite top. John's notch. watching uh, the Sopranos right now. <laughs> yeah. Don't know. yeah. I want to, I want to start doing that more often in terms of there was a cinematography. <laughs> um, but no, so the cinematography here, Claire Mathen, a uh, big year for her. I mean, she's she's coming off a of portrait of the Lady on Fire, which the cinematography in that was unbelievably good. And then this year she has not just this movie, but also Petite Maman, which a uh, gorgeous, gorgeous, stunning movie where that movie had also a lot of exteriors, a lot of woods, yeah. a lot of. Yeah, I it, might. Uh, I might see it Sunday. I, I hope you do. I'm going to try to. It's such a quick, yeah. lovely movie. And with Spencer. This movie has a really big range. I mean, we, we kind of have mentioned how suffocated she is inside of the like Christmas house, but there are also a lot of like road shots here. There are a lot of like her wandering the wilderness. There, there's a shot of a scarecrow in this that is just like it really sticks in your brain. I mean, it, everything is just mm. a shot in such a striking, lasting way. I think um, in a way that's really punching above what I think Jackie was doing. Um, I, th- I just think that. Lorraine really found a kindred, like somebody who can really like bring his uh, vision forth uh, in a way that's really great. So uh, yeah, yeah. Cred- big credit to Claire Mathen for the cinematography yeah. here. And I mean, um, I mean, I don't know if it needs to be said, but I think it deserves to be said. Uh, the costumes in this movie are fantastic. Yes. Um, I mean, I think it's kind of a given, given it's a Princess Diana film, but um, 
Because uh, the costumes are to... part of the story. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, they're a big, big part of the story. They're a big part of and the story. Imagine... They're a big part of Diana herself. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, if uh, Kristen Stewart doesn't win Best Actress, I'd be shocked this movie didn't walk away with a best costume nomination at very least dune, I think dune is the win. one i think i think dune is going to be the 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 for the, costumes the juggernaut for yeah for costumes uh, and for the technicals because the costumes in dune are pretty i mean i could see the academy being like ah but you're an adaptation you had you had something to really build off of but they could, they could say the same thing about this where it's like okay but you have yeah although they do have original outfits in here that are striking against the real life which is i mean that's so impressive I just you feel disagree? like the costumes are such a big part of the story here that 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 would help it win over Dune, where it's like, I feel like I could see that. Yeah. Dune is more about like the sound design, the like the like, you know, maybe cinematography, maybe the score and stuff like that. I feel like that's going to be like what the Academy takes away from Dune in terms of award season. Sure. And it, it might be, be it might be the case where they're like, OK, we gave uh, I'm going to vote Dune on like all these other things like cinematography and production design. But then with uh, I want to give Spencer something, you know what I mean? Like I, I could see that that said that they might be like, ah, but I'm giving Spencer best actress. I mean, you know how the Academy I mean, is. They can't be they can't sure. be controlled. And I mean, like, obviously, I think like Corella and stuff's going to get nominated and like maybe House of Gucci and stuff like that. So like there'll be competition. But um, yeah, I mean, we'll see. We will see. We will see. That's all I got for Spencer. I, I really liked this film a lot. I, you know, it's not my it's not one of my absolute favorites of the year, but of the award season bunch, it's one of the ones that I, that really hit me the hardest. And I think that it's so fascinating. We mentioned this is an American actress in the role. This is a Chilean director, and they're doing something that is really take is transporting you to this like moment in time in the British royal family that I think yeah. is, you know, even even though we I don't think this is going to top all the best you know best of the year lists across the board or anything. I think it is one of those movies that a lot of people, a lot of critics and and essayists are going to look back mm-hmm. on at being like, man, that that was a really good like under understated sort of like breakdown of a person's psychology in such a unique way. Like when people are talking about, I don't like this biopic because X, Y, and Z here's a movie that really did in a more interesting way. I I think that it's going to be a great reference point for years to come. Yeah. And I I think it's also just a weirdly kind of timely film too, because I think it's worth noting that I presume they wrote this last year. They filmed it this year in January. So it is, I think, it's kind of hard to ignore like the COVIDness of it. Like it, it is, you know, like a film in one confined space. It's kind of like their idea of like being suffocated in one location, stuff like that makes it weirdly kind of relevant to the pandemic in ways I don't feel like I want to dive too much into, but it, it does feel like a part of the text in a way that I think will make it quite a film for the now. I don't know if you feel similarly or want to even comment on that at all, but it's something I thought about. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And I, I consider it, yeah, like almost like a post pandemic movie in a sense. So like, yeah, it's, I, I don't think that it's commenting directly on like lockdowns or anything like that. Cause it's not locked. No, down. I don't think it is. I mean, <laughs> but, he, Stephen Knight made his lockdown movie before yeah. this and it was awful, but, there, but there, um, there is a yeah. general stifling of like the world just feels so tragic and so uncertain that I think is more of a post pandemic thing. It's like, we're coming out of it and like, things have only gotten worse. And I think there's that sort of vibe to this movie that kind of echoes. Just as like kind of general sense of foreboding, just kind of like this idea of just like, you can't really like, like you have no sense of control, even though everything feels like, uh, timed out and like, you know, everything feels like so scheduled and manipulative, but there's like this like suffocating sense that you can't like escape at any point in a way that I find really affecting. And like I said, really timely right now. And just, uh, 
yeah, I think it's a really, really well done film for many reasons. Agree. Spencer is now playing in theaters. Uh, it came out in the U.S. and the U.K. this past weekend. And yeah, if you can check it out in a the theater, definitely give it a give it a watch if you can do so safely. I, I saw it at home, but I definitely got plenty out of it in that format as well. Yeah, I saw it in theaters, and I would definitely recommend seeing it that way. We'll see how the box office does. It's a sixteen million dollar budget, and it's, it had a bit uh, of a slow start. <laughs> so I don't, yeah. I don't know if this well, is going to, you know. But it, I think yeah. it's going to have awards legs. Mm-hmm. You know, like right. it's going to have an initial release, and I think that it'll get some like. I, I I think that it has a shot at best picture. I don't. I will. I think you think that I'm I'm wrong about that. No, I think it <laughs> has a, a lot shot. of competition. Yeah, I think it, it will. I mean, I just don't like know how well it's going to do. Right. I mean, yeah. I think it it seems like a lock for best actress. Like I said, it seems like a lock for um, best costumes. Maybe like um, supporting actress for Sally Hawkins, and maybe- I, I think that's. I mean, Timothy Spall. There's a little bit of Timothy action Spall. there, but I think Belfast is real. There are so many other movies that are are kicking up, you know, in terms of supporting actress, supporting actress. I think Best Picture is a question mark. I think, but if, um, and director as well, editing. I think are two yeah. pretty likely ones. Um, but we'll see you. We'll see. We'll see. And I, I hope that it I, I think that it is the kind of movie that might get like a late, you know, or sorry, an early 2022 re-release that could pick it up a little bit even further. And I think Neon will want to do that because it's definitely one of their their big contenders this year. So that is Spencer. All right. Rotten Tomatoes for Spencer. Well, actually, 209 reviews have been encountered for Spencer. It's quite a lot for the movie. Uh, I think because yeah, it, yeah. it was at Venice and, you know, it, right. it, it did it did a bunch of festival stuff. And I think people, critics, were like, yeah, I got to see it. Well, so is what, it, what do you think the score is? Is it doing well in the UK? I didn't ask that I don't earlier. Know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I imagine it will do well if it is, but maybe not. I don't know. Who knows? It's not doing well in general, uh, so I don't think. Yeah, you know, maybe not. It only made know. like $2 million over the weekend. Right. Yeah, I know it didn't do well at our theater. We're playing at the Harris Theater right now. It's not not doing fantastic. Not awful, but not great. Um, but uh, I would say the Rotten Tomatoes score is an 87%. 85. 85 it, was, right. it was higher. Yeah, it's, it's been dropping, like trickle dropping quite a bit. What about audience score? Audience score has 250 mm. plus verified ratings. Where, where do you think it's at with audiences? My heart says 74%. Your heart is about to be broken. <laughs> 50%. Mm, right. 50%. Oh, 50%. Yeah. Wow. That's people, oh. people took one look at Spencer and they were just like down with the monarchy. <laughs> like, mm. no, thank you. Uh, I actually don't know what I the mean, cinema score is. I don't think uh, it's been yeah. released. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, too but I know my, yeah. Yeah. They just, they, they didn't know what to make of it. They're, they're, the jury's still out with them. Um, yeah, I uh, I know the audience that were coming out of Spencer at our theater seemed a bit kind of like puzzled with the film. Like they weren't really sure what to make of it in a way that I could see audiences being kind of dismissive. Just like, oh, well, that's not that's I, I wanted like a movie about her, like her life, not like, you know, like her, uh, you know, uh, mental health or whatever, in a way that I feel like would make it, I think, more respectful later down the line. But I think at the moment, I could see the initial reaction being fairly uh, dismissive. But who knows? I don't know. I don't know for sure. I don't know either. But all right. No cinema score. So I guess we'll we'll get we'll see. We'll see if people, you know, come back, fall back in love with Spencer. Who knows? Let's move on to our last film of the week, or at least for this episode. Let's talk about the beta test. The beta test is a dark 
comedy thriller. Very unique film. It was written and directed, and it stars Jim Cummings, uh, as well as PJ McCopp. He he co-wrote and co-directed the film, and he also co-stars in the film. Um, He's not like one of the main, main characters, but he shows quite a bit. Movie is this sort of high-concept sort of... (laughs) I don't even know. It's about relationships. It's about adultery. It's about a guy, a Hollywood agent, who gets a mysterious letter in the mail saying that he can attend this anonymous, no-strings-attached sexual encounter. And he he decides, if I do this, you know, like... What what will happen? And so as certain events unfold, his entire world sort of just falls yep. apart. <laughs> um, well, yeah. yeah. Mike Lib, uh, one sentence description would be eyes wide shut meets swimming with sharks. I would say meets office space. Yeah. Personally. I mean, have you seen swimming with sharks? Because that's more um, like Hollywood agent type yeah. thing, I think. Yeah. So. Point taken. It's a short movie, first of all. And it kind of just gets to the point. Like, I was kind of surprised at the structure of this thing. Like, it, it it starts with, like, a cold open. It runs you right into this world right off the bat. And I would say this is one of the most fascinating movies where the main character you hate. He's sort of this, like, oh, gosh, Norman Bates, but, like, more of, like, the American psycho version. And he is, like, he's, like, a the most stereotypical Hollywood agent, this character should be infuriating. This character should be so annoying and so, like, I don't care. But Jim Cummings, we mentioned, he's he's the he's the main guy. He also is the director and the writer. Uh, this movie is a bit of a magic trick because I was so fascinated by every boneheaded, dumb thing, evil thing he was doing. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Under the Silver Lake where you despise that guy, but you're still, like, invested you want to know what's going to happen it's so odd i uh, also really want to point out virginia newcomb who we saw from the death of dick long is in this i i thought that she was kind of the the secret weapon of the movie right like she comes in and you, there, there are some like maybe some preconceptions that i had with her character that the movie totally spins because i think it i think cummings understands what you're supposed to feel like he's intentionally inserting and removing things from this movie to guide you a certain way but then to surprise you i i came out of this movie really digging it i i think i think beta test is a a neat tight fun little thriller uh if, if i can say that with some interesting ideas i don't think it totally nails the landing i think it could have had a much stronger ending but what, what do you think um, yeah, I mean, I was definitely intrigued to see it. Um, I know we didn't talk about Thunder Road when it came out, but I really, really enjoyed that film. I've grown to like it even more thinking back on it. And I think it was a really good showcase for Jim Cummings, not only as a filmmaker, but as an actor. I think he just has such a idiosyncratic screen presence in a way that I think he seems really aware of and in tune with as far as like playing these sort of broadly macro aggressive uh, male figures in a way that obviously, you know, like the the key phrase would be like toxic masculinity or whatever. But like clearly like these he plays the type of guys who like they, they got some shit to work through. <laughs> like they, they've got these like issues that they're dealing with either because of like public perception or like their own inherent like need to do something or this idea that like they as like straight white men are like kind of promised these certain things and they just can't get them. And I thought he communicated on that stuff really well in Thunder Road. And uh, ultimately, I'm favorable on 
Wolf of Snow Hollow, but I found myself a bit disappointed by it. I think you were more favorable than I was. If you did, you see that one? Or what? No, we, that... we were talking last week. That was the one that I skipped. I think you talked about that okay. with Abby. That's right. Yeah, because I remember I remember we covered it on the show, but I didn't remember if you had seen it. Um, I remember I, I appreciate what it was going for, especially in terms of like using the wolf metaphor for like kind of uh, this uh, tale of like addiction and like him play another cop character in a way that you know I, I could see it being narratively a piece with um, with Thunder Road, but I found it to be not quite as as uh, affecting, but. I think this movie, I was really curious about his third film because I was just like, okay, I think he needs to move away from playing cops. Like, he's done this three times now uh, with the, his first two films and then with Halloween Kills. Like, I want to see him do something different, kind of tackling his themes, his pet ideas, but in a way that willingly kind of skews other genres, other types of characters, other lines of business. And clearly, like, Hollywood is festering with these sort of, like, uh, you know, pompous, self, uh, self-satisfied kind of guys who just want to like put on this persona of like they got everything together. They're they're on top of everything, but like you know they have these kind of very fragile egos. This uh, you know, flailing industry that that is so unpredictable and so wildly changing at any given moment in time, especially now. And I think he makes a pretty effective thriller slash satire slash horror film i guess it's technically a horror film overall yeah. it has horror elements to it certainly i don't uh, know if i agree with that it's i mean a, it's not IMDb even that credits. suspenseful really uh i would disagree with you on that one i thought it was pretty tense uh not like it's tense but it's tense in like a frantic i don't know right like, again i think that it's like a textbook thriller satire in that sense yeah, I'm just I going IMDb credits it as a horror comedy. Oh, well, if uh, IMDb. Thriller. Sure, I'm says... just telling you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, they, they credit it as a horror comedy thriller. So that's the three hey, genres you know they, they can I mean, They can do what they want. The beginning of the film is certainly at least horror adjacent. Um, and then there's like a few other scenes that, that, that borrow from the horror. And obviously, his first film was a horror fi- or his second film, I mean, was a horror film. Uh, so, yeah, I mean. I I liked it. I don't know if I loved it, but I definitely admire what Jim Cummings is doing as a filmmaker. And I think he's really in tune with what he wants to say and what he wants to communicate. And I, I don't know if I have liked the film of his as much as I've liked Thunder Road, but I think this is uh, certainly a step up from The Wolf of Snow Hollow. It's funny. I think I think this is one of those episodes where all, where all the movies, I think we're pretty much on the same page. Yeah, I'm in like it, not love it mode as well. I think I think it's it's dark, quirky. And it's, it's what I like about it is that it's clearly about the toxicity of like men in positions of power. Like there's even a part that's like, I miss the early two thousands. You know, there's a lot of like Harvey Weinstein commentary. There's a lot of like, you can't do this sort of thing anymore, but it's commenting on it without feeling like it's above the criticism. You know, you almost get the sense that Jim Cummings is kind of talking to himself in this movie, like a little bit. And I think it's just being honest about what men are feeling about masculine culture and how they're feeling a little bit like, man, what are we supposed to do? And I think there's so much there's so much good content in that regard of like in this movie, it's not like there's some sort of like bastion of here, here's how you're supposed to be. It's a little bit bleaker than that, which I appreciate because I think we've talked about this in plenty of reviews where sometimes I think like Hollywood's response to skirting the sort of problematic dude archetype is that mm-hmm. they make this lion out of the nice guy 
kind of character. He can do no wrong. We saw it like very recently with Last Night in Soho, where that character, he is just, he's perfect. And it's kind of like reverse gendering, I think, what we had to deal with for the longest time with with female supporting characters and Manic Pixie Dream Girls to some extent, where it's like this like endlessly doting, always like perfectly supportive character instead of a one-dimensional human being. So it's funny because this movie, it's about that, but it also like wraps it up in this very engaging story and thriller about a guy who is, becomes repeatedly obsessed with this like sort of scam that he perceives as going on where people are being like lured into this situation with these purple envelopes and he's he's trying to unpack it and i like how the movie too like as it goes it starts to sort of like loosen the bolts on how like bizarre and mysterious this whole like revelation of what's going on is supposed to be at some point you get the feeling oh it's not actually like this big unbelievable thing and that's kind of the point what he's projecting onto it is sort of the point and so i won't say anything else because i think it's it's worth discovering for yourself but i i really got a lot out of it in that respect see i kind of like the merge the two where it's like there is actually something deeper and more sinister happening, but it's also kind of like in his head at the same time. <laughs> like that's what I mean. It's kind I guess of like, like a mix of both. Right? It is there. It's not like it's not like a small thing that's going on, but I do think that like at times you think like it's going for something like oh, I don't know. I don't want to say because I would well, I mean, give too much away, but yeah. Well, I mean, without getting into like the end of film, there there are clear scenes where like other characters are put in harm's way and in danger because of something associated with this like kind right. of a looming presence. So it's like it's not a secret that like there is actual stuff going down. It's just a matter of like how much of it's actually going down and how much of it's related to his paranoia and all this stuff and like how much is he being influenced by these things and how much is he actually just like too into his head to really like see the big picture here in a way that um I don't know, it almost feels like weirdly almost like inherent vice-esque without like the drugs like kind of like there is like stuff going on but also it's just kind of like this weirdo going around trying to act more macho than he really is and just kind of caught in this like huge conspiracy thing that he can never fully understand or even try to really understand properly outside of his own kind of selfish interest in it and uh yeah i think it's 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 done and obviously in a very broadly satirical way but in ways i i often found pretty funny and gripping even when the central character is just a huge douche (laughs) yeah it's it's got a little bit of uncut gems in there too in terms of the franticness of it it's got a little bit of the 23 the number 23 with jim carrey where it's just yeah it spirals and spirals out of something that's not actually that we're spiraling to some respect i actually i totally forgot to what you were saying about uh, the reason i wasn't thinking about a horror is i actually forgot about the like some of this it happens early but like some of the killing that happens in this like the danger of it and i think it's because that was the like most least that was the least interesting thing about the movie to me so i wasn't even thinking about that when we were like oh is this a horror i, yeah. I guess it is because it does have that stuff <laughs> i forgot right yeah I was gonna, well that's why i was kind of confused when you were being <laughs> yeah, about this it. this isn't a horror and someone's like being stabbed <laughs> like, yeah you're just like am i am i being gaslit right now <laughs> <laughs> i'm so sorry uh, Ashen. um no but yeah i mean i think it's Like, I mean, I I used horror kind of loosely with Spencer, and I don't think that's actually a horror film. I just think it has, like, horror-type scenes. This is kind of, like, somewhat of a horror film, but mostly a satire slash thriller slash mystery or whatever that just happens to have, like, kind of like a a horror movie bubbling underneath it at the same time. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, like, 
I, I wish I loved it because I think it's I, I really like what Jim Cummings is going for, like I said, as a filmmaker and actor. And I, I think he's doing some really interesting things. And I think what he's able to do on these really low budgets is really commendable. Like his I think I think his films look really sharp for like being only like a few thousand dollars. Yeah. I think he's smart and, epi- and economical as a filmmaker as far as like using space and time like that. And also I like that his filmmaking is seems like very controlled and thoughtful, but he plays these characters who are clearly like unhinged and like willing to freak out any moment. And it's like this kind of like nice yin yang that I, I think his style is really smart about communicating. And uh, yeah, he just seems to be really kind of uh, honing his style in interesting ways. And like I said, um, it seems like he's moving more to genre territory with his later films in, in ways I find really intriguing. And I want to keep following his filmography for that reason and more. Yeah, I, this thing is a micro budget, like micro two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So it's it's really yeah. impressive because you, you don't watch this movie and be like, I, I would assume it's like a couple million, you know. And the fact that it's like a fraction of that is mm-hmm. it's, it's seriously impressive what he's able to accomplish with so little. And I think part of that, too, is that he doesn't have any big name actors. He, he has people you might recognize, you know, like you might recognize PJ McCabe and you might recognize Virginia Newcomb. But he, he does all uh, almost this whole movie with people, you know, where he's probably the the biggest, most recognizable face. And he himself isn't that recognizable. People would be like, what are the poo? Like, what are you talking about? So I don't know. Um, but yeah, this is from IFC films. It, it sounds like we both dig it uh, a good bit. Yeah. Not, not, not one of my favorites, but certainly something that I, I, I premiered at Berlin and it, it got a little bit of buzz there. It's, it's now available in VOD. I don't think it's in a lot of theaters. Uh, it's only made like $25,000 at the box office. So I think it's at like a handful of theaters right now, probably New York and LA if, uh, if I would have had to guess. But yeah, I, I think it's, uh, if, if you're in the mood for a cool little indie that you can stream or rent on demand, uh, definitely give this one a look. It's, it's worth your time. Uh, any, any last thoughts though on uh, beta test before we play our game? Um, well, is I'm guessing there's no like cinema score or anything for this, right? We're just no. going off of, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Vegas, I don't think has gotten it yet. They yeah. still, they still have Spencer to deal with to, to chew on. Sure. They're, they're still, they're still <laughs> contemplating how they feel they're about still, Spencer. They're still in the theater. <laughs> right. It's like, I think I like that. Um, yeah. Uh, beta test would be even more confounding, I think to them. Probably. Uh, yeah. Um, no, I mean, I don't think I have anything else to, to talk about with beta test. I mean, there's a lot I want to dive into, but I feel like a lot of it would be spoilery. So yeah, I don't want to like, yeah. So I think it's worth watching. It's definitely if you're one you're intrigued by, and if you like Thunder Road, it's worth watching for sure. And I'm really excited to see where Jim Cummings goes next, but, um, yeah, not like a great film, but definitely one that keeps me very interested to see where this filmmaker and actor is going to go next. Agreed. All right. What do you think the Rotten Tomato score is? We have 67 reviews counted. Not bad. So a, a lot of those were Berlin, but we've gotten some more as the weekend came. I'm, I'm actually impressed with how many it got considering how many other films are happening right now. And yeah. I guess there people were like us. It's like, we, we want to, we want to capture at least one thing, you know, get to one thing that's not like the big, big movie. So mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, I, I do think Jim Cummings has earned a lot of clout, uh, deservedly so, I think in, in critic circles and all that. Jim so, um, yeah, uh, I'm going to say 68% for the critic score. 68? Really? Yeah. 68? Is that too high or too low? It's 94. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it was 100 I thought it would just be, coming out I thought it would be kind of divisive. I don't know. I, I was way off on that one. Wow. I I thought you liked the film. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, liked, I thought it would just be more divisive. Interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, okay. What about uh, audience score? Audience score, we can't really, really like, 
take much with because it has fewer than 50 ratings. None of that, like it doesn't have verified ratings, but I, I don't imagine there's like a campaign against this movie. So um, this is a real shot in the dark. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to just say 74% again. 55 55 All people right. people saw this after spencer and they were in such a bad mood they were like you know what i don't like this either <laughs> i don't like anything yeah but yeah uh, of, of all the films we talked about this week I, i'd say beta test is uh it's like right in the middle i would say like i think spencer is like the big recommend for me in mm-hmm. terms of the ones we just talked about and uh yeah beta test is a, a good a good follow if you want to check that out as well eternals yeah. i mean people know if they're going to see that i mean what what could we possibly say about Eternals? That would, uh, you know. we, we said like an hour's worth, I think. I, I guess think we so. said our piece. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening as always. Uh, next week, we are planning to talk about Belfast. We were hoping to do a bonus episode of Belfast, but we got a lot going on. I'm going to be out of town. All mm. kinds of stuff going on. So we're not going to get to Belfast yeah. soon uh, or as soon as we had expected. But we'll talk about that film. We're probably going to talk about the new Home Alone movie, too. And we really want to talk about Clifford the Big Red Dog. Do we I, really want to talk about it? I really well, I want to, really want, I do a drunk right. episode. You know what? If you're excited, I'm excited. How about that? <laughs> I just want to see what this dog is made of. Why is he so big? Yeah. <laughs> I've always wondered. I read the books and they never got to the, Frankly, never really explained it in a satisfying okay. way. So have you seen the trailer for Clifford? I'm guessing not. No. You see a lot of trailers. I've seen it a couple of times. Clifford's not big enough in my opinion. Maybe I'll change my mind Dang when I see it. the film. This trailer, I think he's too small. They make him like, I think like 12 feet. He has to be like, I think like 18 feet or something. He just seems so small in the movie. This is ridiculous, Will Ashton, because it's Clifford. He needs to be the He's bigger a big he is. Red dog. The bigger he is, the bigger the box office. Don't they get that? Right. Well, I mean, they gotta say something for the sequel. Like he yeah, has yeah. to get bigger. His e- his ego has to get him get bigger. And so, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I, I hear. I, yeah, you know what? That's a good point. That's a good point. Also, stay tuned for our Harder They Fall bonus episode. Hopefully, that'll be out this week as well. But until then, we will see you all on the next one from the Internet California. I'm John Agurney. And for Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. See you next time. <laughs>